This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your coach, Dr. Matt, your guide on the side. Buckle in, folks. Three hours of uh, ideas, tools, information, the stuff you need to know to uh, make your life healthier, to live happier, and to uh, hopefully today make some money. We're going to be talking money today. Holy cow. Okay. Have you ever heard somebody say, you know, if those poor people would just get off their duff and go get a job, they'd be fine. Would you believe that the majority of uh, working uh, or of poor people, those living below uh, the poverty line, have jobs? Did you know that? We're going to be talking with uh, BYU sociologist Scott Sanders is going to be joining us. He's going to be talking about some of his latest research and they're exploring what's called the working class poor. It's a huge uh, percentage of those that are living below the poverty line that actually are working. They're working quite a bit. They just aren't getting ahead. And so we'll be talking with him about what poor actually looks like. When we when we use the term poor, what who fits that category? What would we classify as the working poor? We'll be getting into a bunch of topics on that. I mean, with the with the political uh, you know, world heating up and the run for president uh, taking over, there's a lot of different topics that are starting to come into play, right? And we are going to be getting into those, like entitlements, food stamps, minimum wage. Those are all phrases you're going to hear thrown around. Uh, Dr. Scott Sanders from Brigham Young University is going to join us and walk us through that. In hour number two of the show, we've got uh, a really interesting story about a, a young man named Garrett G who is a soccer player here at Brigham Young University. He was the soccer captain of the soccer team. But he put together an app, sold it for $54 million. He and two of his buddies threw together an app. You know, just something you do. Just threw together an app. Not a big deal. Sold it for $54 million. He went on the Shark Tank, actually left Shark Tank without hooking up with any of the sharks, and uh, ended up instead growing a business, and then selling it. And what would you do? So if somebody handed you $54 million eventually, and you made your 54 and you're a college student, you have to divide it up, you know, pay Uncle Sam, do all that. What would you do with your remaining money? Well, Garrett G. Uh, decided to sell everything he owns and take his family traveling across the country. So we're going to be talking to him and find out a little bit about his, you know, his, his path to success and just see, you know, Man, of all things, why are you selling everything you own? His main reason, by the way, he doesn't want to go into debt. He's going to live very frugally, he says. And our third hour, we're going to be talking with a guy named Jeff Steibel, who uh, he's going to talk about machines and humans. What happens when we can actually connect your brain to a machine? It's kind of scary. Our board op here, Ben, his brain's already connected to the, the board. So it's fantastic. It's horrible in dating life, though. Horrible. Because he's got to take the, the, our audio board everywhere he goes. But uh, we've got a great show for you today. And, you know, just to top it all off, as if that wasn't enough, come on, as if it wasn't enough, Kathy Aiken joining us right now with the headlines. 
Good morning, Matt. Bill Cosby has reportedly admitted to giving sedatives to women he wanted to have sex with. In 2005 deposition, Cosby said he gave quaaludes to the women. That deposition he gave under oath as part of a lawsuit filed by a former Temple University employee. More than two dozen women have come forward with similar claims, all denied by Cosby. One of those is Barbara Bowman. It was a big Big breath, um, big sigh of relief, um, of hope, and um, looking forward to this, this next part of this journey because I think this is really just the beginning. Cosby's lawyers tried to keep the deposition sealed, saying the report would, quote, embarrass the 77-year-old comedian. The South Carolina State Senate voted yesterday to remove the Confederate flag from the State House. The vote was 37 to 3. They'll vote on it one more time today before the House takes up the measure. If it passes there, Governor Nikki Haley is ready to sign it into law. This coming after a white gunman killed nine black people in a Charleston church last month. The man accused of shooting a woman on a San Francisco pier has been charged with murder and is expected to be arraigned in court today. Francisco Sanchez has a long rap sheet, including being deported back to Mexico five times. San Francisco officials are facing harsh criticism after denying a request from immigration authorities to keep the man locked up. One person is dead and four others injured when ice caves collapsed in Washington state yesterday. The same thing happened Sunday without incident. Warm temperatures are said to be the reason for the collapse in the Mount Baker Snoqualmie National Forest. A couple from Dalzell, South Carolina, has been arrested and charged with child neglect. This after they allegedly forced their 14-year-old daughter to live in a tent in the woods because she ate a Pop-Tart without their permission. The girl was given a flashlight, a roll of toilet paper, a whistle, and a watch and was told to stay there for a week. The parents reportedly told their daughter she could meet someone at specific times to get food. And the Women's World Cup final on Sunday, Matt, was not only record-breaking for Carly Lloyd in the U.S., but it also set a new record as the most-watched soccer game in the history of American television. That's so cool. Isn't that awesome? That's awesome. So the 5-2 victory for the U.S. was seen by 26.7 million people. That topped the previous mark of 26.5 million last year for the Men's World Cup final when Germany beat Argentina. So Holy way to go women. Yeah. That beat last year's. Now what happened? Wasn't the U.S. in a, the U.S. men's, no, it was the U.S. women's a few, four years ago. Four years ago. They were in the final against And Japan. they only had 8 million viewers. Was that what it was? I, I didn't see it that. Was less, really? It was a lot less four than that. Four years ago? Mm-hmm. Because wow. I think it was more in the day, wasn't it? This was primetime television Sunday. Sunday night. Boom. Boom. But that's like World Series quality. That's a that's lot of people. That's more. I heard it was more than the NBA Finals and the World Series Are you uh, serious? final game. Yeah, that's a, that's crazy. That's amazing. Ladies are But it was interesting, too, it's because cool. somebody was talking about the fact it wasn't necessarily soccer fans watching. It was Americans yeah. watching and hoping that our country you This know, is what we needed, some... right? America needs some Exactly. And I think that's why it was the patriotism of it. Yeah. The July weekend helped. That's, oh, that's but yeah, true. I thought that was interesting. It's not necessarily soccer fans. It was just the fact it was the Americans that we but wanted to But there will be win. millions of little girls playing soccer now. Yep. More than ever. Just um, And I off. heard that we have the most young uh, most girls playing soccer in the whole world in well, this country. Think about that. We will then dominate forever. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Finally. The women. Way to go. Women dominating. Yeah. Now, by the way, what's with that story of the 14-year-old daughter and the Pop-Tart? crazy? Yeah. She, I, you know, Do I didn't not say much Pop-Tarts. more about, yeah, you eat the Pop-Tart. Sorry, you're in the, you're in the woods Sorry, for a week. Out Is in that the tent. crazy? That is crazy. I mean, come Parenting on. Parenting 101. It's, because she took a Pop-Tart. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know you could do that because now my kids, I'm going to try that. The <laughs> Where pop, are you going to put them? I em? mean, it's a Pop-Tart. Are you going to put them up in the canyon? Yeah. I don't know. 
I'm just gonna like today. I I leave. They're all they're all sleeping in. Mm-hmm. Just cozy. And wondering, you're wondering why in the world did they mm-hmm. not get up at five o'clock to yeah. make you breakfast? Why what is a pop tart? I had to eat a pop tart <laughs> on my own. But why didn't they? Like I'm, I'm asking them to go work on the garden, go mm-hmm. weed, mm-hmm. and they look at me like, with these hands? Are you kidding me, Dad? I'm a piano player. I might hurt myself. <laughs> oh my heavens! Yeah, that's not good punishment. But, but I have okay, to say, yeah. I'm, I do love pop tarts. I you gotta love a pop tart. But it's... I have to have it without the frosting. Do you like the frosting? Too much, uh, that's too much sugar for me. I mean, it? there's enough. In yeah, the I don't. I don't love the frosting, but I. Do you put butter on yours? Ooh, no, butter. Yeah. Would you heat it up and then uh-huh. put butter on it? Oh, yeah, that's that's a little too rich, I think. Yeah, but if you take the frosting off, it replaces. It's just perfect. <laughs> and then I like to <laughs> back to your trans fats again. Oh, Here we go. My heavens, pop tart's the perfect food, by the way. <laughs> It'll last for weeks, years. It'll Decades. last for years. It's worth it. It's worth it. Um, well, good stuff. Well done. Well done, Kathy. You did it again. Man. Hey, we've got a great show for you. Uh, we always hear all the politicians jumping on words like entitlements. There's too many people on food stamps. You know, minimum wage is a new thing. A lot of people are pushing for a higher minimum wage. What do we do with all this information? Well, we wanted to inform you um, about when, we, when you talk of about the poor— we want to introduce an idea to you called working class poor. The majority of people that are considered poor or living below the poverty rate, did you know the majority of them are workers? They're working. They have jobs. And the jobs just aren't enough. They're not getting enough. So we've asked Professor Scott Sanders to join us uh, here from Brigham Young University. And he's going to walk us through some of his latest research that he did with some people from LSU and Cornell a wonderful article about working class poor. So when you drive by or when you hear all of the politicians throwing out the poor and those that are just, you know, sucking the life out of the government and the government coffers, let's be real about what's going on there. We'll take a break. Come back and join us. We're talking working class poor right here on the Matt Townsend Show up next. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you believe that if you just, you know, anybody in the world, anybody in the country, if they just put their head down and start working and just work and work and work, do you believe you could dig yourself out of the hole? So let's say you uh, come to this country, you, uh, you're, let's even say you're legal, everything's good, all your papers are up, you're good to go, but you're poor, you're in poverty. Do you think if we just started working, you're, it's just going to happen? You're just going to naturally float to the top. Is that the case? Because according to some of the latest research on uh, the poor, uh, it's not quite that simple. And th- this, uh, this topic we're going to be getting into, it's, it's a big, big deal, especially in this upcoming uh, presidential race. Did you know that last, as of last year, 16 million children were on food stamps? According to the U.S. Census, that is the highest number since the economic tumble in 2008. 
According to the Agricultural Department, about 46.5 million people received food stamps last year. And according to new studies by sociologists here at BYU and Cornell and LSU, the majority of United States poor aren't jobless. They're they're just, you know, bumming around. They're looking they're working at low paying jobs. They're they're doing their best. They're just not able to get ahead, but they're in low-paying jobs, and they can't even support them their families. Dr. Scott Sanders is joining us. He's an assistant professor of sociology at BYU. He co-authored the study, Work and Occupations. He joins us now live to help us understand better the, the working class poor. Scott, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for having me. I mean— we just think of, I mean, we hear it, and we hear it on talk radio all day. The poor just need to, you know, quit begging for money and get working. But you're you're saying in your study and your research they are working. Yeah, that's right. Um, this th- this is one thing I really liked about starting this project on working poverty is, uh, you know, I teach classes too on poverty, and, and the, the typical perspective people have on poverty is a panhandler standing yeah, on the side exactly. of the road. We'll work for food, and inevitably you hear stories hear stories about, well, I know so-and-so, and all they ever did was just mm-hmm. milk the system. They never worked. But what we found in this research, we're looking at working poverty, and, and it's a little more complicated. We tried to, to flush out how that gets measured and find the best way of measuring it. Uh, but what we found is most of the people who – the majority of people who are living below the poverty line, and the poverty line in the United States roughly is 24000 for a family oh. of four. So we're not yeah. talking extravagance. Right, right. right. But most of the people ha- have a job and are working. And so a better picture of poverty, instead of thinking about the man on uh, – you know, a panhandler yeah. side road, we'll work for food. A better image of poverty is the person who took your order at a fast food store or that mm. checked you at a grocery store. Yeah. That's what American poverty looks like today. And we don't – most of us don't experience that because when we were working at a restaurant, a fast food restaurant, we may have been a 17-year-old kid. The rest of us, I mean, it seems like we just have been handed a better opportunity. If, if, if somebody's gone to college, that very idea is going to dramatically improve their ability to get out of poverty, isn't it? Yeah. Or is that still real? Well, that's and that's that's part of uh, what I think is really interesting about this and some other the research I've been doing on looking at poverty is is the American dream still is it a real? Reality, yeah, right. So for for myself, you know, my parents came from very small towns, were able to work they their way up. I benefited from that. I'm hoping my kids work on it. So there's this intergenerational exchange mm-hmm. and, and improvement. And the reality of can somebody from a small town with poor families and a poor background, can they still climb them their way out and make something of themselves? That that's begs the question. That's a question you know that's that's uh, you know a lot of researchers are looking at. And with this working poverty research, what we found is it's not looking that way. Yeah, you know, a lot of people are, are trying. They're they're doing their best, and they just can't provide enough for their families. Is it? And then this gets into the big discussion where we were having over minimum wage. Is it? Is it that we're not paying those jobs enough? Is it that they need more training? Do they, I mean, would it be a better investment that we train these people to get them out? Or is it a better investment that we just pay them more? To stay where they are. Well, that's a, that's a great question. I get that a lot, and I think one of the things we need to look at is some of the assumptions. So, to, just real quick, working poverty means you are. We looked at the working ages, so eighteen, sixteen, five. So okay. we're not looking at those teenagers, right? That are, right. That are, you know, like when you and I were, you and I were awful jobs, burgers, right? Te- teenagers, eighteen, sixty-five. Uh, then we ran. Uh, then you need to pick. Uh, are you going to look at a head of household measure or a whole 
family, mm-hmm. everyone pooling their money together, and then what poverty line you're going to use. Okay. And we did 126 different measures to try to say, here's everything possible out there. Wow. What can we call working poverty? And based on what assumptions you're going to be making changes what policy you want to do. Okay. And that's kind of one of the things why this that's paper— That's the gamesmanship of politics, though, exactly. right? So everyone's using different numbers. Oh, and that's that's the thing. You know, that's got to drive you crazy. It drives me nuts. I hate, like, presidential elections <laughs> yeah. where they say, well, my, you know, my statistic says it's X, and yeah. we need to do—therefore, oh. we need to have this policy. And then the other person says, no, no, we found it's Y, that's and right. so we need this policy. That's right. But to show you some—to get back to your question about minimum wage and how this might help working poverty— if, if you decide to use a, a poverty measure where you're looking at heads of household, so we're trying to say we want to create a system where an individual can go out there, get a job, and provide for their family. And, and that's if we're using that measure of, of working poverty, we're finding um, a lot of people, millions of people um, are still in working poverty. If you're looking at individuals, you may want to look at working at, at minimum wage. Okay. Now, I'm not a labor economist. Yeah. You can discuss whether that's going to create jobs or take jobs away. We actually away. have one coming on, I think, tomorrow. But <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. they would know more than I would yeah. about that. But but it would. There's an ethical issue. So there's an ethical issue to that. Do we believe the American dream, where an individual can go out and and um, provide for family. If we want that to be there, then maybe it's more than just an economic issue. Right. Maybe there's an ethical issue with yeah. it. If we're going to measure pe- working poverty looking at a whole household that we say, well, we think every able-bodied person 18 through 65 should be out there contributing to the, the welfare of the family, then we're pushing and promoting a dual dual spouse yeah, that's right. employment. And so, so it's then now household to, income. Then we need to start thinking about child care subsidies. True. And so you can see just how, you know, again, 126 different measures, yeah. changing subtle things will drastically change what kind of policy you want to implement. Well, and honestly, who's even, I mean, go state by state, city by city, country or uh, government by government. Who's, we're not even on the same page. Yeah. We don't even know. It just kind of depends what city you're in too, right? I mean, and it depends what the federal government's going to push and who's the president this year. And I mean, it's it's so up in the night. It seems like this is why you made a really good point off air. This is why Bernie Sanders is starting to gain some traction yeah. because he's sitting there talking about the disparity of incomes and the, the lower the, the lower producers, the poorer, the poorer are getting poorer. Yeah. They're not digging out. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, and I think um, that's that's where I think it's fascinating looking at that Bernie, track, Bernie yeah. Sanders traction is because I think he's trying he's starting to reveal what this paper and some other research I've been looking at on on poverty is starting to show that that uh, American poor is a different picture than mm-hmm. what it was recently. And you're right, like the varies. We have federal programs, we have state programs, city programs, and so people get are getting help in different ways. But but we're we're hesitant. You know, I still hear that a lot. This 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 culture of entitlement. Yeah. That there's these people are just deadbeats and right. don't want to work. But that's not the case. And and you know and uh, some politicians are starting to shine that light, saying, "Is the American dream a reality anymore?" And and I, if I'm being honest, I'm a little pessimistic. Well, right yeah. Now. You, that, you look that, at your data. Yeah. Right. You know, like I can and and it's you know it's sad. I, I've gone and done research in in uh, you know different little towns all throughout the United States. Mm. And there's some areas I just think like the statistically speaking, the likelihood of a kid coming out of here and, and really making it is low. Is that inner city or is that just smaller town America? That's both. Is it I'm really? more of a, I, I do more work more in rural, rural areas. Do you really? Um, but that's both. Because we, we would assume the inner cities that they're harder to come out of. There's a lot of other oppressive you know, conditions and situations. But you're also saying just rural middle America. It's, yeah. if Because if, if you're not educated... 
you're not coming out of it. Well, it's it's if you think about it, there's different problems, right? So inner city problems are different than rural problems. Right. So if we think about what it takes for someone to get ahead these days, right? We usually just push this education. You yeah. need to get a good education, get a good job. Think about how difficult it is now to get into a good good college. Oh, you right. Know, like the, the kids are, you know. Um, uh, I, I knew people at, at grad school that their younger brothers and sisters were starting to take, you know, testing, uh, getting a, a tutored on tests starting oh. in like seventh grade. No, yeah, high school students getting college credit. Yeah, but that's that's only a select few. Exactly, exactly. That, that their parents know. I know I need to uh-huh. push this for my child. I know this is important. That my school has the availability for yeah. it. So some of these more rural areas, they don't have the the, the ties, right, or right. The, the understanding of this is how you play the system to get to where you need to be. Uh, and so some of the rural areas, you get you get trapped that way. Plus, um, you don't have jobs. You don't have jobs. Yeah, I remember we I did a project uh, in grad school in upstate New York looking at brain drain, the idea of why young people leave their small towns. Yeah. And a lot of uh, post-industrial decay in upstate New York. And we were uh, yeah. talking to kids, and they were like, yeah, well, you know, I'm hoping to be able to get a job at the local, you know, it was Home Depot. Because, oh. like, really, you know, realistically, that factory shut down, that factory shut sure. down. I don't want to do the military and I already messed up, and I only have like a B average, so I know I can't get into a good school. So, so that, the brain drain. The people that can leave, leave those that can't yeah. stay. stay. But if but if the economy drops, if business drops, if factories close, it yeah. just shrinks. So that's the issue facing rural America right Interesting. now. Is is that is that that's that 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 the loss of. Of, of human capital of, of the smart ones leaving the town, and then economies being you know consolidated yeah. outside of some of these small areas. Well, and but and then that's what I really want to blow up is this idea that they're they're just not working hard enough. So I mean, a lot of this is just opportunity. It's the the opportunity's not there. The the, the situations are right. Sure, if you were super driven and uh, had this incredible drive, you could probably find a way to leave. Go bootstrap it and make something happen. Yeah. But that's not the majority of people. Yeah, that's true. And that's that's something that's you know, I hear a lot. I'll hear people saying on the one side, well, I know this family that was deadbeat. Yeah. Or I'll hold the other side where it's like, well, I knew somebody who was yeah. who was, you know, like raised by squirrels in the park <laughs> and then ended up getting a PhD at Harvard right. and now is a Nobel laureate. Yeah. You know, some other extreme case. And you know, the reality is that those are extremes. They are. But for the average American, for the most of the people who, who we're talking about here, the bulk of America, that that's they're not in those extremes. And it's so, so the, we're, we we don't have the same kind of opportunities. You know, I mentioned to you off air that after I graduated from uh, from undergraduate, uh, my wife started her graduate school, and so I moved out with her. And the only job I could find was was at a, a, a Home Depot. Yeah, a college degree guy in New York, yeah, upstate New York. Upstate New York. I had good grades, good good <laughs> scores. Uh, the only job I could get was uh, operating a forklift because I got uh, my part time job as a, as an undergrad. I got certified as a forklift operator. Well, are you serious? Yeah. Well, yeah. What, what was your undergrad degree in? Uh, it was pol- political science. International. Well, so you, check this out, Scott. So you stole the job from five other guys that didn't have degrees. Yeah. I mean, that's really what's happening is you, you, there's no other job in upstate New York at the time because yeah. things weren't booming. Yeah. So you had to go get the forklift job and the, you got the license, but the 10 guys that were from the small towns around Ithaca or wherever, yeah, that was a, yeah. they were all like, 
they don't have anything. And they're like, yeah, these smart kids, you know, get their degrees and they come here. Yeah, that, I mean, that was the reality. And some, you know, in Ithaca, it was a, sm- a saturated community because of the it's, university. It's a but. big deal. Again, we're talking with Professor Scott Sanders, who's a so- assistant professor here at, uh, of sociology at Brigham Young University. He got his master's and Ph.D. from Cornell, and then he did some research with um, some a guy from Cornell and one from LSU. What were their names? Brian Thede is uh, assistant professor down at LSU, and Dan Lichter is the uh, professor at Cornell. It's good stuff. We're talking about the American dream, folks. Is it still alive or, or isn't it? We're, we're also getting into the latest research by Dr. Scott Sanders on America's working class poor. We'll take a break. We'll come right back, continue this discussion. But you be thinking about it. Do you feel the dream is still alive? We'd love to hear from you. Tweet us at Dr. Matt Show right here and uh, love to hear your comments on the subject. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Uh, the American dream, is it still alive or is it now just, you know, an illusion? Well, for a huge percentage of the population, it's it's probably becoming less and less of a real opportunity. Uh, today we're joined by Professor Scott Sanders, who's a professor of sociology, assistant professor of sociology here at Brigham Young University. He's uh, written... A really, I think, incredible study and was a member of a team that put together this study on the working class poor. And the working class poor uh, would be those people, Scott, that they're they're actually working. So the majority of the poor, I guess some of the numbers I saw, there's roughly about 46.5 million people who received food stamps. Mm-hmm. So I guess they're obviously poor. What What are the numbers of those seen as poor, living below the poverty line? Yeah, that's about right. About, about 46, 46 million. million. Yeah. But you're saying about 26 million of those are working class poor. About 24 million. Yeah. 24 if million. You, if you took a if you take a, a definition of that they're um part of a household where um the head of household is working at least part-time or more. Yeah. Then tw- then you have about 24 million uh, men William men William men women and children yeah. living in poverty. So like we talked before, that's below $24,000 a year for a family of four. I mean, if you're a mom with three kids, you and how do you work full time with three kids without i mean i guess we then throw our kids in daycare yeah. which is going to cost unless it's subsidized which i mean how on earth do you dig out you just can't dig out if you're a single mom and yeah. i'm assuming a lot of the poor are single women yeah that's and that's what we found is that that women are more likely to be working poor than mm-hmm. than men and, and that's part of part of the problem of when we're addressing this what do we want to put priorities on what policies do we want to do now we can now we can enumerate yeah. it how do we help them? And if we think, look back at the 96 welfare reforms, that was one of the problems where we had this mentality of, oh, the poor just need a job. Right. Let's just get them a job. Get them They'll work their way out of, uh-huh. of welfare. And what ended up happening is is that you know it did help people get jobs. But what we had is there's all these single mothers that then have this dilemma of what do I do with my children? 
Oh yeah, because I'm either going to spend most of my paycheck in in childcare. Yeah. Oh, and then my and then they're going to be raised by someone else. So I may as well be home, or may as well be home. So that's the dilemma. That's the ethical issue we're we're presenting to people. Do you want to spend all your money so your kid can be in childcare, or or be on on food stamps? And so yeah. that's it's we're not setting up very positive options no. for people. And we're almost forcing it has to be dual income. So mm-hmm. now we are forcing couples that everyone has to work. To get out where some families might feel it's better that only one of the members, one parent works while the other takes care of the family. Yeah, and that's that's where you know we talk about in the paper that this is this is beyond just an economic. This is an ethical issue when yeah. we're talking about working poor. And so when you have questions like you mentioned before about you know what should we do about minimum wage, well that's a strictly eth- economic issue. Yeah. If we ethically believe that we should think that uh, a household should be su- should be supported by one person, then we need to say well then we need to make it sure that there's jobs. Out there. Then if, you need yeah. Then you need jobs and better pay. Yeah. So I you know I've talked to colleagues who do more family research than I do. I, I do more just kind of mm-hmm. poverty. But colleagues, you know, we, when we've talked about these results and some of their own research, one of the the ways we're undermining the families economically. We're not oh, yeah. presenting. Not first of all, we don't have a, a system out there where people can really work their way out of poverty anymore. Right. But then we're penalizing families too because we're saying you can't make it anymore, and so both of you have to go out and work, and the kids have to go in child uh, uh, into daycare somewhere. And it's true. And that's that's what we're setting up for the American family right well, now. Well, and it's maddening because we're speaking out of both sides of our mouth. One at one stage we're saying there shouldn't be a minimum minimum wage simply because you know we're pro business, mm-hmm. and at the other side we're saying we're pro family. And we want to be able to have the family, you know, maybe be a, a single income earner, but they, you can't have both. You, you can't pretend to want minimum, not want minimum wage, and not want the, the the salaries to go up, while simultaneously saying we want to support family. At some point, you're choosing one or the other. Exactly. Sometimes those ethical moral issues don't line up with that. And that's huge as we're thinking about presidential candidates because they're going to be – everyone's going to be pro-family. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to sit there and say, I hate families. Yeah. I want them destroyed. <laughs> but our policies make or break that. Yeah. And it's hard because you know you. I mean a lot of people would say just – when you just hear the rhetoric that goes on in talk radio and with our, with our politicians, we hear all the time they're so pro-family. But look at their – look at what they're saying. Yeah. If they're not supporting family uh, policies like making it so that you don't have to – so you have the choice of having one parent stay at home and that we could pull out of this hole – then um, if they're not if they're not showing the policy, then think deeper. Yeah, I hear that. You know, this is this is my personal view of things, but I see this a lot. Where I'll see people saying we want pro family. You know, everyone again, everyone's going to say pro family. Sure. Um, but but what? But if you had to rank what they actually are saying, they're saying pro business then pro family. Uh-huh, and exactly. those don't always match up. And That's so right. we, we need to be careful when we're or, thinking or about Or they it. might not say on the other side pro government. Yeah. Or pro family. And sometimes yeah. we think if you're pro government, you're pro family. But yeah. you're not either. Yeah. I mean, it's like so you can't be pro-business or pro-government. You have to be pro-family first and then create policies that's, that are structured right. Yeah, and that's, that's the, like some of this research like this one. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got another paper with the, my, my co-author Dan Lichter from um, Cornell and our colleague Ken Johnson at uh, 
University of New Hampshire where we're looking at infant poverty. And the reality mm-hmm. is is there's policies that are made and then it finally affects American people. And these these pay, this study here and this other one on infant poverty, that's where we see what's actually happening. What is the snapshot of American life? Yeah. And so we can have yeah. these we can have these new pundits and we can have politicians saying their sound bites that sound nice and pro-America and pro-freedom. But when we really see what the, the numbers are telling us, the, the, you know, from the census, this is, you know, this, we didn't make these numbers up. These yeah. are you know, good numbers that the, the census and other, um, you know, agencies have collected. We get a different picture of what America looks like, particularly post-recession. The, yeah. the, the lower classes just haven't recovered and that poverty, the opportunity to improve uh, just is, is, is going away. And that's where we see this rise of working poverty um, where it hasn't been as, as, well, as large a percentage of the poor as it has in the past. Yeah, and you, you hear, you hear t- talk about jobs and the, the employment rate. None of us really know what the real employment rate is because it's depending on what you're counting. Mm-hmm. But this also makes sense as to why many people might have just dropped out of the, rate, of the job market simply because if you're poor, you've got to decide. Am I going to go make money to pay for my child care or am I going to not work? And if I'm not going to, I mean, it might just be easier to not work. Yeah. I mean, really, because other than, or work part time. Yeah. And yet, and then others will cry, why aren't you working full time? You could work full time. And then, but we don't understand the complexity. We always think just cause effect, but in sociology, it's multiple causes. Oh, yeah. Multiple effects. Yeah. This is highly complex it, systems. It's really, really complex. And, and that's, that's the reality. I mean, if, I, mean I, I don't want to put my life in the same life as, um, you know, some of these working poor because I'm, oh. I'm in a different, boat. But yeah. my wife uh, is, has a PhD too and we had to sit down and figure out was it worth her continuing her career because of the cost of childcare? Yeah. Was it worth it for what we wanted to do as a family? And we had the luxury of sit back and saying, well, mm-hmm. we could at least live off of my salary. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, but the reality is a lot of Americans don't have that luxury. Yeah. It's, it's like, well, do we, do we not make it and hope that food stamps and some of these other programs can make up the difference? Or do you try to go out too? And then we try to figure out what childcare costs will be because that eats up so much of an income uh, it's it really is kind of um, disheartening when we, we think yeah about it. if you put yourself in their shoes let alone like you believed you could get a PhD yeah and your wife believed that yeah. I was the first in my family to get I think a master's and a PhD but I didn't believe I could yeah. until people kept telling me I could I, I and we came from uh, a single parent home so we were I guess we were never probably below the poverty line, but we were we were above it. We were doing okay, but it was my mom working hard and my dad. And but in the end, I had no idea I could educate my way out of it. Mm-hmm. But it's funny now, though. I guess I was the, one of that small percentage. But I, my kids, by golly, I tell them every day, yeah. you, you, this isn't going to happen easily, and you need education. And yet you have to believe you can do it and you have to have almost a track record of doing it. Yeah. And that's part of you know the trick of, of this poverty too uh, is understanding. Let's say we'll stick with the kids. Yeah. Understanding, well, what classes do I need to take in high school mm. to get ready for a college? How do I apply for college? How do I apply for financial support? Yeah. Uh, how do I pick a major? How do, you know, the little tricks that you're supposed to go talk to the professor in their office yeah. to get to know no, them. Right. Like, exactly. I didn't know that until no. grad school, right? You're but, supposed to have study skills. Yeah. All these, exactly. all these things that that aren't necessarily there. And that's where we talk about some of these, these penalties for the poor is that this isn't this is something that's not known. Yeah. And so it's not passed on to the kids. And so that the ability to be able to work yourself out 
uh, is is even that much more difficult because you don't have some of these 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 this this knowledge that can be passed on from generation. Yeah, to we generation. keep the poor poor. Just and, and it's by knowledge that it's not even. What's the name for that type of knowledge? It's not even tangible. It's just it's just learned. It's just. It's not. It's not like sitting in a class. Yeah. It's like you should just know that you need to go check on your grades. Yeah. Well, it, uh, my wife was the first in her family to graduate from college, and just that, you know, she had a, mm. you know, it's like a, she had to break down all these things. Well, that's not how you do it, and miss out on yeah. certain opportunities. And then her, she's you know one of the older of a big family, so she was able to tell she's all her tutoring. younger siblings, yeah. this is how you do it. This is what you do, and so they've all been able to be more successful because they don't have the same kind of barriers. But if that's you think about, yeah. if you think about about that like how do you how do i have a career you know how do you do business uh these things aren't necessarily passed down right you know it's, there's usually an environment people are around and they, they they learn some some tricks of the trade that aren't in a pamphlet yeah. aren't in a classroom nope. and those, those can make a difference and it's i think so i think true. when we look at inequality where we're seeing that this this growing inequality in the united states it's this accumulation of that is that we we're seeing some people subtle information some people have been doing this for generations yeah. their parents have been educated and and so they know how to do it and get their kids into school, which why wouldn't you? I'm no, not right. trying to believe no, everybody that. would. No, everyone's going to try to do sense. that. Yeah, but there's a growing population that don't know how to, don't know the value of education, don't know how to pursue it, don't know how to get good jobs, and so that's where we're seeing this increase mm. in the bottom. Percentage and you're only a generation away from that, right? You're you're yeah. you're one generation that that like you could be you could come from a family that's well educated well integrated the other thing is once you're in that you're in the system mm-hmm. you're in the network yeah. and the networks can help you stay in the networks yeah. once you fall out of the network and the education one generation you you could lose your entire fa- family you're, i mean yeah. everybody all of your all of your kids, your grandkids could just fall into this routine of not thinking they can go to college. Yeah, and I guess you know the positive side of that is that it could be also the other way. Exactly. That it can, flip but, it, it. but it is, but it isn't quick, uh-uh. right? And that's something we that you know when we talk about development and poverty reduction, it's never a no. quick thing. It's going to be we're going to make a change, and then hopefully the next generation will benefit mm-hmm. from those. Well, then you bring in immigration, so then we have more immigration coming in. And then they might fall below the poverty line, and then we're wondering why there's higher crime, why there's all these other things. I mean, this is what I think is important to be thinking about: is what do we want as a society? You keep bringing up: is it a moral issue? Is it a, is it an economic policy? Mm-hmm. But it, we're the ones that vote. We're yeah. the and even if you're just the middle class, quit assuming the poor don't care and they're lazy, mm-hmm. and quit assuming the rich know. I mean, the reality is, is we're all in charge of this, aren't yeah. we? So we got to probably push our politicians a little harder and be informed. Like your study, what I love about it is it informs us. These people aren't lazy. A lot of them are just flat out trapped. Yeah. And they're digging. They're doing the best digging they can. But when you're digging at a low income job, you're not going to dig yourself out of this. Yeah, and I think you know one thing. If we're thinking about you know voting and being yeah. informed, one thing that that this study I think highlights is so we did 126 different measures of working poverty. Oh. If you can get from those different measures, you can have two percent of the population in working poverty, all the way up to about 24 percent. So you can get huge Jeez. range. So think about what's the assumptions being made behind these things. Right. When when you hear these numbers, when you hear policies being made. What is it assuming? Is it like we talked about before? Is it assuming single parent? Is it That's assuming right. dual parent incomes? And does that line up with what you feel is correct? There's again, there's economic what you view economically, there's moral issues. Right. And that's up to the individual to figure out how they want that's to pursue right. that. But to under be educated, understanding what those the numbers are go into exact. those numbers. That's the thing. See that again, interestingly, that's an educational benefit. So you go get a PhD, you understand to yeah. not trust any number. Yeah. 
What, yeah. So what, what, what were the assumptions? This is how you started. What were the assumptions that led us to those numbers? Yeah. And we always have to t- check the assumptions and check who's saying it. I mean, depending on what station you're listening to or depending on what politician you're hearing, there's always going to be certain inherent assumptions. Yeah, and that's where they're they're usually correct. Yeah. But they're not going to tell you what your assumptions that's are. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and so then you they throw to, the number out yeah. there and everyone's like, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. So what would you suggest, Scott, as we wrap this up? As somebody that studies working class poor, what what should we we should number one be checking assumptions and becoming informed? What else should we make sure we remember? When it comes to the poor and working class poor and also you know, pulling up the, the, the working poor. Yeah, I think for me, I think what I would say is give people the benefit of the doubt. There are always going to be people out there who are going to milk the system oh, yeah. and we're not going to get rid of that. So right. when you hear those stories, yes, that's true. But, but, but next time you're at a fast food store, next time you're at uh, checking out at the grocery store, and look at the person that's helping you and remember that's probably what poverty is. Mm-hmm. That job, whether they're you know, just still the teenager, that job doesn't make enough to, to feed a family of no. four. And to remember that the most people out there are trying. And so we should give the benefit of the doubt. We should, we should be compassionate and maybe think about what we want our politicians to be thinking about and the view that they have of the poor. Yeah. To make sure our politicians that we vote for a way that is saying, I want the American dream to be here. I want that person at the fast food place to be able to have a better future and their kids to have a better future. So, so give people the benefit of the doubt and remember that the, the, the face of poverty isn't the panhandler. Mm. It's, the, it's the person working the 95 yeah. uh, And odds are it's job. probably a mom yeah. across the counter from you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, she, and she's going home to three kids yeah. that are still struggling in school and she's – She's hoping she has enough to pay for food that day. Uh. Yeah. It's tough stuff. Well, Scott, I appreciate it. It's, it's seriously, I think, powerful insight. And um, folks, it's it's our life. It's it's ours. We get to we get to go be what we want to be. I would also just add that let's make sure that we're focusing on pro family candidates first, pro business second, pro government second, pro family first. And you would know that by ask them. Just go find out what do they believe in? How do they, what are their assumptions about how we grow a family? Does that, do we grow a family by having everybody work? Do some people stay home? Can that, can that be a male staying home or a female staying home? Let's go find out what our, what our, uh, what our leaders believe in and what they, what their assumptions are. Great stuff. Professor Scott Sanders here from Brigham Young University. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, what, a, what an interesting discussion. Again, we sit and we listen to the news, we listen to our politicians, and we just, we get this idea that we know, right? That we know what's going on with the poor, and the reality is, we have no clue. We have no clue. Unless you've lived through it and had the fear of making it or not making it, we don't know. We just, but we then throw out this idea like, you know, if people would just work hard, you can make anything happen when you work hard. Uh, sure. Totally agree. And let's throw a little other data in there. If you're working hard 
to just give up half of your income to take care of your children, you're not working. You're working hard. It's not helping you. We'll work harder. Okay. So I'll just work harder to then give up two-thirds of my income to take care of my children. Well, you shouldn't have had kids then if you weren't. Okay, great. And life happens. And uh, some things you can't plan for, like let's say a husband having an affair on you or becoming an alcoholic and leaving you high and dry. Well, yeah, but that's why we got to deal with alcohol. (sighs) Folks, we don't need any more judgment. We don't need any more critics. We don't need anybody else telling us how bad the poor are for not working harder or um, that a policy is going to change everything. A policy is not going to change it because these are complex situations. So when you're looking at your politicians, get very real about them. They might be able to spew a lot of rhetoric and you know sound bombastic like they really have a clue, but do they actually have a heart that cares about what's happening to a single mom in poverty? Because they probably don't. If if you can't relate, you can't relate. And so all of us can do this a little bit better. Next time you're across the, the counter from somebody at your getting your lunch, look in their eyes for heaven's sakes and try for a second to put yourself in their shoes. What is it like to be them with their two or three kids at home and doing everything they can to just give their kid a hope and a dream and um, and see if you can't be changed just by feeling something. Feel. Feel for these people. They're not just a statistic. These are human beings trying to just have the good life you have. That's our number one, folks. So the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Got a great uh, guest coming up next hour right here after the break in the news. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show, hour number two of the program. Again, more information than uh, you could ever find to help you grow healthier, happier lives We try to go out and not just give you the news, but also give you the tools you need to make uh, the news matter for you. Help you live longer is the goal. Love stronger and lead the kind of life you want to lead. Lead your family. That's the goal of the show. Today we've got another uh, great topic coming up. Uh, Garrett G. is going to be joining us. He is a college student, by the way, a senior, I believe, here at Brigham Young University, uh, captain of the soccer team here at BYU, also a millionaire. Made an app, you know. Just, I'm just going to throw together an app. He threw together a little app because he didn't like the apps he was looking at, and bada boom, bada bing. Eventually, got to sell the app for about fifty four million dollars. So, if you had fifty four million dollars in your pocket, what would you do? I'm going to Disneyland. That's what I would do. Would I be doing a radio show if I had fifty four mil in my pocket? <laughs> Absolutely. I would totally – they're all looking at me like I wouldn't. I would be here. I'd be, I wouldn't be doing the show at 440 in the morning. I wouldn't get up then. I don't blame you. <laughs> I'd pay off this company. You could buy – maybe you could buy the broadcast building for I'd buy for the building and then I'd have everyone show up at 9. <laughs> That's exactly I what I would I vote for do. that. Would you, would you vote for that? I do. 
it's really it's just too darn early. But um, if you had fifty four million, what would you do with it? We're going to be talking to this young entrepreneur. Find out what he's doing with it. One thing he's going to do is he's going to not get into debt. He's just invested it, and he's not really wanting to use any of it. He's going to just actually he's going to sell all of his stuff, and he's going on a trip with his family. So. He's selling his all of his belongings because he doesn't want to go into debt to go on the trip. And I'm like, just use some of your millions. No. But again, don't take my advice. I haven't made $54 million on an app. So we'll be talking to Garrett G. a little bit later. And uh, just also a little later in the hour, we have one of my favorite segments on the show. It's Seeing the Good in the World. Kathy Aiken goes out and finds examples in this world of good. And it's easy in the world to just find all the bad because that's pretty much what you see on the news. Except if you notice at the very end of every news show, they'll tease you with a good. And you're so excited to go, oh, there's a kitty cat. Look at the kitty cat. And we want to see the good in the world. So part of our goal on this program is to help you see the good in the world. So we'll be, we'll be doing another one of our seeing the good in the world uh, at the end of this hour. So stick with us for that. But before we do anything else, let's go to the... The one who sees the good, Kathy Aiken, and find out what's going on in the headlines. Good morning, Matt. State and federal law enforcement officials raided the home of Subway Sandwich spokesman Jared Fogle this morning. This is part of a child pornography investigation. Members of the task force reportedly removed electronics from Fogle's home in Zionsville, Indiana. Fogle has been detained but not arrested. Back in 2000, Fogle became famous after losing 245 pounds eating two Subway sandwiches a day. In a 2005 deposition, Bill Cosby admitted under oath to obtaining sedatives to give to women he wanted to have sex with. The testimony was part of a civil suit filed by an accuser, accuser, and it was released yesterday. Nearly two dozen women have since accused the 77-year-old comedian of sexual assault, claims Cosby has denied. Attorney Gloria Allred, who represents several of the women, said she hopes to use the 2005 admission in court cases against him. The South Carolina State Senate voted yesterday 37-3 to remove the Confederate flag from the Capitol. The vote now moves to the House. If it passes there, Governor Nikki Haley said she'll sign it into law. Haley said removing the flag is a way to honor the nine black people killed by a white racist in Charleston last month. San Francisco prosecutors have charged illegal immigrant Francisco Sanchez with murder. This after Sanchez shot a woman standing on a pier. Sanchez had seven previous felonies and was deported back to Mexico five times. San Francisco is a sanctuary city and is facing sharp criticism after letting Sanchez go. This after immigration and customs and Enforcement officials requested he be kept in jail. Sanchez is scheduled to be arraigned later today. A mother from Maine is calling for stricter laws on explosives. This after her son was killed on the 4th of July when he set off a firework on top of his head. On Saturday, 22-year-old Devin Staples had been drinking when he lit a mortar tube and placed it on his head and was killed instantly. His mother, Kathleen Staples, wants lawmakers to consider requiring safety training courses before someone can use fireworks. And Matt, I know this is really going to come as, as hmm. bad news to you, but Floyd Mayweather is no longer the WBO I welterweight heard. champion of the world. That according <sighs> to the World Boxing Organization. That's because they stripped him of the title after not paying $200,000 in sanctioning fees from his win over Manny Pacquiao in May. The WBO requires boxers to pay 3% of their purse up to a maximum of $200,000 
You know, Mayweather earned two hundred twenty million. Come on, come on, it up, come on. What is that? That's that's uh, pocket change, right? See, that's that is not being nice to the one that brought you to the <laughs> exactly. dance. Exactly, two hundred twenty million dollars for just dancing around in the ring, and and you yeah, know that what? was a horrible, I would do that. that was a horrible boxing match. You pay me two hundred oh, million? Sure. I'd take him on. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, what's the concussion cost? Yeah, well, you just cower in the corner and yeah. you know just no, I just run out, and take a ring. hit, get it knocked out. <laughs> Just be like the you know the men's soccer players you know lie down <laughs> exactly and go right. ah I'd be flopping all yeah, over yeah you're flopping but you, you know what it's isn't that interesting that if you just hear it now it doesn't matter how successful you are all of these people from Jared isn't that horrible to Cosby to I mean all of them eventually just you just get tainted you're something's going to happen you're just human right so yep. if you're in the limelight long enough. It's going to catch up with you. You know, and the sad thing about Cosby is, of course, he's going to deny these allegations. Yeah. So all these women, they've just been trashing these oh, women, these you know, who have women. come forward right. with these allegations. So now that this comes out, you can just imagine that all of them are going to go after him again. Oh, so here we'll we see. go. This yeah, is here we, the this floodgates, is, right? This is going to get crazy. And um, and then you have the good story of like the women's soccer or some of the stuff that you do with seeing the good in the world. And then all of a sudden it balances that. Right. So we need – we need five positive stories to one negative. What would the news sound like, Kathy, if all we did was five positives to one negative? Wouldn't that be a great? We should try that sometime. I don't know if anyone would believe it. They'd be like, this is just too soft. Yeah, really. When's the world going to fall apart? Well, like the TV. What is the TV adage? If it bleeds, it leads, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. yeah. Unfortunate, but that's un- that's the truth. Yeah, it's totally true. Yeah. And it, and it just makes people, I think... Assume that everyone is bad, or yeah. that you know the world is evil, right. and I think there are a lot more good people than bad. So. No, absolutely. Yeah. And it's just that it's just timing too, when you think about it. Because if this had all taken Cosby fifty years ago, if he if he was at his age now, he none of this would have ever been known. You know what I mean? Because right. we have these news cycles where we know the latest and greatest advancement of every story now and it's crazy and the thing with cosby i mean come on what was his show all about i know you know good family values oh wow Mm. not good not good but we have a great story coming up in about 30 minutes okay these are my favorite okay seriously stick with us for that um and before that of course we're going to go talk to a millionaire so if you're a 54 million dollar app developer and you sold your app for 54 million what would you go do? Think about it. You have a young family, maybe two kids. Would you just, would you retire? Would you just, or you're just really getting started. We're going to be talking with Garrett G, who, uh, who's lived that life. And we're going to find out just, you know, his story. It's pretty, it's pretty inspirational. And really find out what he's trying to do now with his life that he's kind of, you know, set up for life. This is uh, the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in life right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, who wants to be a millionaire? Remember that show? That that show's still on TV, I'm sure. Uh, millionaire seems to be the dream of a lot of Americans. If we could just, you know, make a million bucks, my life would be set. 
But uh, if you did make a million bucks, what would you do with it? And what would you do with it if you were young? Like, let's say in your 20s. Well, our next guest uh, is Garrett G. He's a college student, and he made millions when he sold an app called Scan. It's a scanning app. And he sold it to a big national company. Huge company. They paid 54 mil for it, and uh, he and his buddies had a fine little payoff. And we, we've asked him to be on the show today for a variety of reasons, just to tell us his story. It's pretty, it's pretty incredible. But also because um, of what he's now choosing to do with all of the money. It's, it's just interesting stuff. Garrett G., welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Now, Garrett, you're here at BYU. You're a BYU student. Are you? And you're you're the soccer captain of the of our varsity soccer team, huh? Yes, I currently play for the men's BYU soccer team. Yes, that's cool. And um, married? How many kids do you have, Garrett? Uh, married with two children, a little girl named Dorothy, who's about to turn three. Cool. And then a little boy named Manila, who's almost one. Oh my heavens! And I, if you, you've got a really cool uh, website to go just look at your family and your kids and your life. But here you are, Garrett, some young punk living the dream. <laughs> you're you're an athletic stud. You're the soccer captain, <laughs> smart cat. You throw together an app. You make millions. But it probably wasn't that easy, was it, Garrett? <laughs> I wish it was that easy. <laughs> Talk about it. Talk about how how did you come to decide to build an app? Tell us the story about about you know putting it together, building the team, and how you went about making fifty four million dollars on it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, kind of like you expressed, um, look at our situation and think that it came very fast and very easy. And I mean, three years isn't a long time, but looking back three years, mm. uh, it's just it's exhausting to remember it. It's exhausting to look back at it. Um, but it all started when I was a freshman at BYU, and I had just re- returned from my mission. I had served in Vladivostok, Russia, mm. and I purchased my first smartphone. And when I purchased my smartphone, it came with a brochure saying, here's some apps to download to kind of get you started with your new phone. Yeah. And one of them was a scanning app. Anyways, I downloaded no, the scanning explain app. Explain the scanning and app, because some people, I don't get that. Why do I need to scan yeah, so anything? It, it was very simple. It, it, it scanned QR codes and barcodes. And so an example would be if you were in a store shopping for, say, a computer, and you find one at Best Buy, and it's $2,000, well, you could scan the barcode on the packaging, and it would tell you, what the product was, and where you could find it for cheaper online. Oh, wow. So, you know, again, maybe you're in Best Buy and you scan a camera and you find out you can get it for $150 cheaper on Amazon. Yeah. Um, the scanning app would help you do that. That's cool. So, again, scanning QR codes or barcodes to get more information about products, marketing, pricing, whatever it was you uh, were wanting to accomplish. And I thought that technology was really cool. I was, uh, I was not tech-savvy myself at the time, and so I thought it was some cool voodoo magic <laughs> that I could scan something with my digital device in the real world, and they would, like, interact together. I thought that was crazy. Yeah. And so, again, the technology was super cool, but I was kind of unimpressed by the app itself. It wasn't very well designed. It wasn't simple or intuitive, and it was kind of sluggish. Anyways, more and more that I became obsessed with my, with my phone, 
um, I just loved all the different apps and I loved what was possible. And I wanted to kind of, I just wanted to start creating my own apps. I had a lot of ideas for apps, but I didn't really know where to start. Anyway, so I thought that creating a scanning app would just kind of be a fun starter project. Yeah. Because it was simple enough. It did one thing and one thing only. And I didn't like my current app. I, I downloaded other scanning apps, and I, I didn't like them either. So, yeah, that's where it started was a fun side starter project to teach myself how to build apps. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. I've had a phone like you, and I've played on apps, and I thought, oh, those are cool. And I never would have thought of designing one. But So <laughs> you're, you're just kind of a designer, aren't you? That's just in your You're a designer. Yeah, well, I mean – in high school and growing up, I always wanted to be some sort of artist or designer. Yeah. But most people told me, like, hey, there's not a whole lot of, like, career art options <laughs> in the art space. So, and, you know, it, would almost, it was almost like they were putting down my, like, the creative side of my yeah. skills. Yeah. Um, and telling me that was a really hard way to find a, a future career in. And, I mean, to their benefit, they're, like, I guess when I was first starting high school, the term app designer didn't even exist yet. And yeah, and so then you come off your mission speaking Russian, uh, <laughs> playing soccer, I guess, for BYU, and you figure out this app. And th- then what did you do? You you kind of built your own, and it, st- it started, it, d- it did okay, right? But it didn't just take <laughs> off. Yeah. Well, you needed a little more money? I, I kind of fiddled around and just tried to like do it and build it myself. And the design aspect, the design side of it became like came pretty easy to me, but the coding and programming side was very difficult. Yeah. So I built my, I did my best effort to build version one, but um, very quickly I realized I needed the help of like some talented programmers or engineers to help me, and so I found two students on UIU's campus. Their names were Kirk Wiemet and Ben Turley, and I was still a freshman. They were both seniors, and they were kind of had these reputations as being the best of the best on campus. Really? And so they kind of helped me take my janky prototype and polish it off into something ready for the App Store. And so, yeah, after about three months of the three of us working together, we published it into the App Store and uh, just (laughs) crossed our fingers and waited to see what happened next. Do they just love you, Garrett? Do these two just look at you? Do they Every time you walk up, do they just hug on you and just kiss your cheek? Looking back, it's been really interesting because at the time, it was just a young freshman asking two yeah. seniors, hey, do you want to team up with me on a project? <laughs> right. And I had actually asked them and one other individual. And the other individual, this third guy, he said no. Mm. And he had had two projects kind of being proposed to him at the same time, yeah. mine and one other. And he said no to me and yes to the other. So, oh, that guy's um, killing yeah, himself. The, the, my two guys that decided to partner up with me are definitely proud and excited. That's and huge. That they did. What was it like? And the when, other gentleman, not what, so much. Not so much. Just, have you talked to him lately? Uh, kind of. He he. Later in the story, he sent a job application to us, hoping to to join our team. Mm. But uh, the fit wasn't right. <laughs> You know what? That see. By the way, that other guy's me. That's that's my luck right there. I'm the other guy. Um, so tell me about what is, what is it like when you finally got your app up in the app store? So now all of a sudden you're seeing your app there. You, and yours was a free app at first, right? So it was getting a lot of traction, right? Yeah, and I mean, uh, it was. It's weird thinking this way now, but when I put it into the app store, like 
I was done. I thought that was just the best thing in the world, that something I had conceived and worked hard on was now live in the worldwide, you know, Apple App Store for anyone to download. I was very excited at that point. And if that's all that would have happened, I was like proud of myself and felt accomplished. Um, But I remember my partner, Kirk, who is more like metric and money minded, he, he wanted to set some goals around it. And so I just kind of let him go crazy with it. And his goals were he wanted to, across the lifespan of the app, somehow reach 1 million downloads. Hmm. And he also wanted to, from this project, make $5,000. <laughs> and uh, mission I didn't accomplished. See how either one of those were possible, but right. I'm not going to crush his dream. So yeah. I agreed to those lofty goals. <laughs> <laughs> and it took um, off. Yeah, it, it very quickly started to get traction um, to the point where it was getting 5,000 downloads a day, then 10,000, and it continued to grow until we were getting between 80 to 90,000 downloads a day, oh. which is a little over one download a second. And um, and competing yeah, with Angry Birds, right? So this this took on Angry Birds head to head, and eventually you beat Angry Birds up. Well, it was um, it was at the time, yeah. Angry Birds was just like the hottest thing in the app market, and it was I think ranked ninth overall was Angry Birds, and we were in like the tenth or eleventh spot. Uh, and I actually had an opportunity to meet with the creators and some of the investors behind Angry Birds, hmm. and so. I remember going into the meeting, I took a screenshot or I opened up the app store so I could show them like, hey guys, you're in the number nine spot and we're in the number 10 spot. That's pretty cool. Anyways, the meeting is going on and I brought it up and they're like, oh really? And so I brought up the app store and during the meeting, we had switched and we were in the number nine spot and they were in the number 10 spot. <laughs> Dude, that is a great moment. That's good timing. Yeah. Did just like, hey, no, no offense, but I guess we're nine now. You guys are 10. Oh, I was mistaken. I'm so sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. I guess we took you over. Um, but that's it's cool because it's one thing to be booming with a free app, but you don't generate as much revenue, right, with free apps. I mean, I guess you can with advertising. But you started uh-huh. making – you eventually wanted to take it to an app that people were paying for. Yeah, for sure. We uh, um, part of Part of the challenge of having a side project – become much larger than you ever imagined it would be is you're kind of like playing catch up, trying to create a vision or a product or monetize out of something that you never even intended to like Mm -hmm. do more than a month long project. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, just along the way we were trying to figure out, okay, we've created this beast of an app and it's creating, you know, becoming something of its own. How do we make money off of this? And it was when we had the opportunity to go on that popular ABC TV show, Shark Tank, that we decided, okay, we're going to have millions upon millions of people exposed to our app. Is there something we can do to monetize and kind of bank off this opportunity? And again, it was uh, my co-founder, Kirk, who had the idea of like, let's hurry and, you know, hit... uh, work as hard as we possibly can because, you know, it's going to air pretty soon. Let's work as hard as we possibly can and create a second, better version of our app and charge for that one. Mm. So, And you were going on Shark Tank to get an investor who would add some more money to to make that even a better app? To just yeah, basically we, cash at the time, roll. We didn't. We didn't need money so much, but the the sharks on the TV show are very well connected and yeah. just very savvy business individuals, and so we were very interested in working together with them. 
But as far as money goes, we had worked with Google Ventures and many other investors to, uh, we had about, we had almost $10 million invested into our app and company before we even went on the TV show Shark Tank. And so, you know, young guys working out of small town Provo, Utah in a humble office, we didn't really need that $10 million. And we had it. And so to go on the TV show Shark Tank, we definitely didn't need even more cash, at least not at that time. Oh, my heavens. Man, Garrett, this is crazy. Uh, We're going to take a break. We're talking with Garrett G., the founder uh, and creator of an app called Scan, which he has since sold, and uh, $54 million they made on this app. He's telling us the rags kind of to riches story, and then he's going to tell us what he's going to do with all of his money because he's not just buying you know, a Maserati and hitting town. He's he's just going to be with his family for now. And and continue his love of designing. We'll be back. We'll be back more with this great entrepreneurial story from Garrett G. Right here on the Matt Townsend Show. To the Matt Townsend Show. His name is Garrett G. Uh, he is our entrepreneur that we're highlighting today. Uh, it's really a cool success story when you think about it. And it also tells you, I think, how the world has changed. Where within three years you can build an app, even though you didn't even know how to build an app. You can become an app designer, hire a couple of really smart uh, code writers, and bada boom, bada bing, you're selling your company for $54 million. And by the way, that bada boom, bada bing means a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety and a lot of fears and hopes going up and hopes being dashed all in a few years. Garrett G. joins us. He's a, is a student here at BYU. He's also um, soccer captain for BYU's soccer team and uh, is now the owner, well, is now a millionaire and cute family, two kids, and is trying to figure out what he's going to do with the rest of his life. Uh, He's in a great position, I think. Garrett, welcome back to the show, my friend. Thanks so much. You really are. It's a, you're kind of, it's just the story everybody I think loves to hear. Some want to kill you. Uh, Some are jealous. (laughs) Some want to kill themselves for not jumping on board earlier. But um, you, you got your app to a position where, you were getting eighty, ninety thousand uploads a day, and then you uh, you got on Shark Tank, that show. And how did you do with the sharks? What was that like? Um, to be honest, it was very scary. I went on the show um, like one, once we had the uh, the invitation or opportunity. Uh, a lot of people, including my own investors, advised me not to go on the show just because they can edit you to kind of look however they want to portray uh, you. Yeah, um, but. I mean, I'm a young guy, and I like fun adventures, and so it just sounded like a very cool, exciting new adventure to go on a uh, a TV show that I've long watched myself. And so I agreed to go on the show. We went on it, and uh, but it was terrifying. Like, yeah. to be standing there in front of the sharks, in front of the cameras, in front of the producers, like the whole time, I was very nervous, very scared. Did you have your other um, owners on with you? Would you have your other uh, partners on? No, yeah. I did not. They they kind of came on the trip with me. Yeah. Um, but uh, at least on the show, like on set, it was only myself. Okay. Wow. And how did you do? Did you did any of them pick you up? How did that go down? No. 
I um, I mean, if you've seen the show, I think I basically did as terrible as you possibly could where <laughs> I did not get a deal from them, but I didn't even get an offer. Like, I was ready for what I was going to say and when they made me an offer and how I was going to negotiate and this and that. Yeah. But no offer was even made. It just, I did my pitch. One of them gave me, you know, they asked a few questions and then one was out then the next was out. And pretty soon every single one of them, were, you know, they were all out. Holy cow. It got to any negotiations, and I walked off the stage. <laughs> oh, but you know what's so funny about that? You already had $10 million in Google Ventures. Uh-huh. So, I mean, good. I mean, it was it, to, to you, that was really just more of an experience you were having. You weren't in dire need of their money. You would have loved their contacts, I guess. Yeah, and, and you, you said it very well that a lot of people who go on the show, their business is going to live and die based on whether or yeah. not they can close a deal. And that definitely wasn't the situation for us. So because I'm a very competitive individual, when I left the set, I was crushed. I was, I felt like I had been sent there to accomplish something and did not accomplish uh, it, and I was really crushed yeah. by that. But then like five minutes later, I realized like the big picture of, well... We just had very amazing exposure for our company and app, yeah. and I didn't have to give away any of the company for it, and the company is still doing just as well as it was before. Awesome. Um, this is a good thing. That's really good. That is so cool. I mean, in a way, it's funny, though. That's you know, that's a big league experience. How many guys in their company have to go pitch their company a million times, and they fail, and they fail, and they fail? You just, you yeah. just magnified it. You just did it on national TV. Yeah, exactly. Not a big deal. Then you came back and you – then what happened? Then you built it up. Did you, I guess you got some of your investors. I guess it was Google Ventures. But you built this bad boy up and you sold it. Yeah, yeah. And so we uh, – it was never in our plan to sell the app. We wanted to build it into something as big as we could possibly make it. And along the way, we were very careful to build it and create a culture and lifestyle in a way – that we would enjoy it for the rest of our lives. Hmm. So that even if 25 years from now it's still the same, you know, same app, and we're still doing the same thing, uh, we would still enjoy life. We would have the time with our family that we wanted, the freedom to travel, and you know, uh, kind of go after other hobbies as much as we wanted. And yeah, just really live the best lifestyle we could possibly think of, just because it was totally up to us. Yeah, we were the owners of our business, like. Why not create a life anything less than ideal? Yeah, talk about um, how you how you finally did sell it. Uh, I guess companies just started seeing how successful you were. It was now a paid app. I guess it's two bucks a, an upload. Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. So we had a free version and a paid version. The paid version was two dollars, as you said. And yeah, both versions were just doing very, very well. Um, the whole time we had very intelligent and well-performing software that is always intriguing or, or uh, desired by bigger companies. And, yeah, and we were just a very talented, small, fast-working team. And so we had had multiple offers come our way throughout the life of the business, but nothing that really intrigued us. Anyways, like I said, it wasn't part of the plan, but then when the acquisition offer came that we finally accepted, it, it was just right. Yeah. You know, the timing was right, the offer, the price, everything was just, just felt good. And so we we just accepted it. And that quickly, our lives changed. Oh. I mean, in a way, it seems smart because it, it almost seems like to me, you're you're a creative person. You are, 
you you like the freedom of the creativity, but to have to run a business seems like it would bog you down too. Were you relieved to to be out of the business and kind of free to just go be what you want to be? So most people, like you said, sometimes people will get angry when they see someone else achieving financial success, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I think I think that type of individual would be even more angry with me if they saw my lifestyle <laughs> as boss and CEO of the company. Really? Because, yeah, I lived a very free lifestyle where I would, you know, I played for the BYU men's soccer team, which takes up a lot of time. I, even aside of that, health is very important to me. So even aside of that, I was spending one to two hours in the gym. Yeah. Um, my wife and I really love to travel, and so we were going to Tahiti or other places once or twice a year. Um, and I was just spending a lot of time with my family. Most days I would just work from home. I wouldn't go into the office because I wanted to be around my family. Yeah. Um, so lived a very liberal, free lifestyle throughout the uh you know, three years that we were building building the app. Isn't that interesting? Because it could have been easy for you, Garrett, to just get sucked into that and have to go be the corporate guy. And but instead, you really held true to to who you are, which is you're just you're kind of the, a free spirit. You're a creative, free soul. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I had two things working for me. One, I'm very uh, young, and two, I'm very inexperienced, and in that I. I went straight from high school to the mission to BYU. So I never had a job before. Yeah. And so I didn't really know how that whole structure worked. And so when I had even just a little bit of exposure to, you know, these corporate managerial, large, you know, very structured lifestyles, it immediately was like shocked me and scared me. And I was like, yeah, I definitely don't want to be a part of that. (laughs) So if I'm the owner of my company, well, then my company is going to be very, very different. That's cool. Yes, we kind of did things our own way. I, I like that. And I think, too, I think it's just kind of an interesting example of uh, what business can look like today, that you don't have to build this huge monstrosity of an organization that you then have exactly. to keep feeding just to keep it alive. You can keep it lean and trim and, and in your case, sell it and move on. Now, what I really think is a fascinating story is you're not now living high on the hog. In fact, you've got a deadline Speaking of deadline and goals, August 21st, tell us what your plan is on August 21st. (laughs) Yeah, so between now and August 21st, our goal is to sell everything we own. Um, And on August 21st, we are going to be leaving our home behind. We'll be selling it. It's just an apartment. Um, But we will be, yeah, leaving the country and going on an adventure around the world together as a family. Oh, my heavens. So now why do you need to sell everything? Why don't you just put it in storage? But you're you're getting rid of everything you own, even your apartment, and you're selling your cars and you're selling your your furniture, your books, everything you got, and then you're going to just travel the world. But why why does a millionaire need to sell everything? I definitely don't need to, um, but it's kind of, I, I guess the best way to put it is because in our minds, this is a lot more than just like a vacation around the world. This is kind of the closing of one chapter of our lives and uh, preparing to enter the next chapter. And we were thinking like, yeah, we have the financial freedom to go build the house of our dreams, go, you know, yeah. kind of grow up and enter that next chapter of our lives. But we weren't we just didn't feel ready for that. It didn't feel right for us. And so we 
decided that a, a trip around the world would solve a lot of things. One, um, now that we have this money that has entered our lives, if we can go around the world and be exposed to other cultures that live very happy lives with a lot less money than most everyone has around us currently, right. um, that'll really set our minds in a good place where we don't just kind of live comfy, you know, posh, fina- uh, wealthy lives just because we can. Hopefully, my hope is that me and my entire family will be exposed to a, a different side of compassion and service and really just finding happiness with less. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that's a big reason why we're just selling everything so that uh, by selling everything, it'll more than fund this trip around the world. So we can only do it because of millions of dollars. We can do it just because we're selling everything we currently own. Kind of an example that anyone who wanted yeah. to do this really could do what we're doing. Um, and then also it is, it's going to feel very good and liberating to not have anything. Right. You, know, you don't have to, you don't have to come back to, you, you can, you can decide to go wherever you need to be. Exactly. Exactly. And I hope like just, just the point where my mind and my perspective is currently, yeah, I would love it if the rest of my life, I never have like, a large storage unit where stuff is collecting yeah, right. dust or a garage that is, I can't park my car because it's so full of stuff. Um, yeah, hopefully I don't ever have more stuff than I need. I only, you know, I only have uh, what I need and with the rest of it, I can uh, be a more giving person, which I would say currently I'm not as compassionate or serviceful as I would hope to be. And hopefully this, this uh, adventure around the world will help me learn some of those attributes. Well, I think that's a great example to us all. And then, you you've put together a bucket list with your family of is, is I guess it's hashtag bucket list fam is that the name of yeah so we created a website thebucketlistfamily dot com and then on Instagram Twitter and other things it's at thebucketlistfamily okay. and uh, yeah we uh, on the website we've created this bucket list of destinations we want to seek out and then at each destination we have a goal to learn a new skill. Um, do a service project, and then have some crazy adventure mm. excursion. So I guess an example would be first we're going to Hawaii, and the skill in Hawaii is free diving. Oh, wow. And once we learn how to be, you know, um, accomplished free divers, we're going to head down to Tonga, and we're going to free dive with the humpback whales <laughs> in Tonga. And then, you know, and then we're off to, to a service project in New Zealand. So Neat. Um, it should be something pretty special. Oh, yeah. And sharing, I mean, it seems, I think, powerful that where you could just jump right back in, use all your cachet now to to go big and do it again and go big and do it again. You're You're just turning to your family right now and trying to, it seems like, get more back into what matters to you, get centered, not get big-headed about it. I mean, you could grow this into Crazyville. But instead, you're you're just trying to you're just trying to stay focused on what matters. Yeah. Again, kind of. I think it's. I'm very grateful that uh, this happened when it did at a young age for me, because I still kind of have a untainted perspective in some ways. Yeah. And so for me, uh, having had a certain level of success, I've had the opportunity to interact and kind of network with some very very successful individuals. 
And one of the things that I kind of noticed amongst a lot of them is I would see them and they would have crazy money, the fanciest of homes and cars and everything, and yet they were still working harder than I had ever seen anyone work. Hmm. And I definitely respect um, like their hard work and accomplishments, especially when they're working on something that is bettering the world. But a lot of them seemed that the only reason they were doing it was to kind of get more money. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, the question I would just ask myself over and over is like, why, why, if you already have this money and if you're doing it so that you can have more freedom and go be with your family, at least that's what's important to me, then you're there. Like, at what point do you stop? But for them, it was just kind of like this never ending rat race. And, uh, yeah, so I kind of made a mental note to know what was kind of important to me from the very beginning and, and not let myself just be in that never ending chase. I love it. No, I think it's I think it's great for all of us. And man, that we could all have the opportunity. I think that would be great. But to also just have the insight, I think that's even better. So we wish you the best of luck on your travels with your family. We'd love when you come back uh, to have you back on and find out what you learned. Uh, yeah, no, for sure. Hopefully, hopefully, I learned quite a bit. <laughs> I think you will, Garrett G. Thank you so much, and uh, best of best of luck to you and your family. Not like you need luck, for heaven's sakes. You seem to have hit gold, <laughs> Garrett G. Thank you, and uh, we're going to we're going to take a break uh, again, folks. There's it's entrepreneuring, struck gold, and yet you know what he's he brought the gold on too because even though he's got all this the money now, he's still staying focused to what matters, and that's got to be so hard to do, so hard to do when everyone around you is telling you to spend it, spend it, spend it. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be checking out uh, a segment called Seeing the Good in the World. Kathy Aiken will be here to, to help us do that. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to BYU Radio. the Matt Townsend Show. You know, one of our uh, my favorite segments on this show is this seeing the good in the world. And uh, Kathy Aiken joins us. She goes out, finds examples of goodness out there, and then she highlights them. Kathy, what you got in store for us right now? Well, Matt, these are for all the parents out there who have ever had trouble getting their sons to mow the lawn. We found four brothers from a small town in Texas who mowed a one-acre lot, and they didn't get a single penny. Their payday was the simple satisfaction of serving someone in need. It was a woman who apparently violated a city ordinance she knew nothing about. The Reynolds from Bosqueville, Texas, are a down-home, salt-of-the-earth country family. Their town is small, but Mom Tanya says it's big enough to keep her four boys plenty busy. It's right outside of Waco, and, you know, my kids believe in wearing their boots and jeans. They're little country boys, so (laughs) when they're not wearing baseball cleats and baseball pants. But something outside of baseball grabbed their attention recently, a news story about an elderly fellow Texan who needed her lawn mowed. If not, 75-year-old Gary Suttle in nearby Waco may be headed to jail. We woke up and it was on the news, and the news was playing on the TV, and the boys were like, Mom, we should go mow her grass for her. And I said, do y'all all want to go do that? Because, you know, it's either for all of us or none, you know? And they're like, yeah, we want to go do that. 
15-year-old Brandon, the oldest Reynolds boy, saw the news story with the rest of his brothers. We were watching it and we were talking about how sad it was. And then me and my brother got the idea to go mow our yard uh, so she could stay out of trouble. But this was no ordinary yard. It was a one-acre lot across the street from Mrs. Suttle that she owned. And if it wasn't mowed, she could get a warrant for her arrest, something 12-year-old Braylon didn't want to see happen. I wasn't happy when I knew that she was going to jail. And that's one of the reasons I went out there and mowed. 11-year-old Blaine was all in, even though the grass was taller than he is. It was really tough because the grass, it was sitting six foot tall and I'm only five foot, maybe four foot, 11, um, uh, somewhere around five foot. So it was a good 12 inches over my head and it, it was really, really tough. So one part of my mind was telling me, oh, how are we going to get this done? And another part was telling me that let's, let's go get this done and help this lady out. So with four boys and three lawnmowers, the boys went at it. Oh, man, it was really hard um, um, due to how tall the grass was and that we only had push mowers and that they kept on dying and that we had to keep on restarting and pulling that string to every five minutes because they kept on dying and refilling gas. Five gallons of gas and two and a half hours later, the lawn was cut. Mrs. Suttle was speechless. Uh, she was shocked because how much work we've done, and she gave us a hug and told us thank you. After their morning of service, a few left with bad allergies, and they all left with empty pockets. Their payday was knowing they did something good. We didn't care about getting paid because we just wanted to help her out and keep her out of jail. It, it makes me feel good that knowing we're doing this but not getting paid, because once you're there, you're like, oh, let's just go get this done, and then when you're done, you're like, man, I really helped someone out, and they didn't have to pay us. The Reynolds boys, which also includes 10-year-old Blake, have a few jobs they get paid for, but the job in Waco was a valuable lesson Montanya didn't want them to miss out on, one of the many life lessons she's taught her boys over the years. It's been as outpouring as a lot of comments, a lot of text messages, phone calls, and a lot of when, a lot of people say in the business surprised me, you know, they, they learned from their mama and I have to really put it back to the grandparents. I'm raising my kids the way my parents raised me. Honestly just remind them that we only have one life to live. And it's always better to give than to receive. And that's something I tell my kids all the time. I'm very, very proud. I'm a very proud mama. Tanya Reynolds. I love her. That's cool. What a great example for totally. her children. Isn't that, though? Oh, yeah. So just as an update, Mrs. Suttle, she pleaded not guilty to violating the city ordinance, and now she's awaiting a pretrial date. And she told me over the phone she was thrilled by the boys' hard work and just really surprised that these boys would give up a summer day to come oh, help wow. her. She didn't want to talk on air. I think she'd just kind of been overwhelmed by all the publicity. <laughs> but these boys deserve big kudos. Way to oh, go. Oh, totally. Way to and- go. Again, it, it, two and a half hours of their life, right. but memories and character and integrity, that's cool. Exactly. And all of them watching this story together, and every one of them said, Mom, let's go help her out. That's she awesome. said, you know, you're not going to get paid, and they didn't yeah. care. I mean, really. Oh, yeah. How many boys do that? There's always something, right? That's it. And what's funny is a lot of boys would, would do it, but they're not going to get noticed, or they might not – um, like a lot of kids don't think about it, but I had my son once, our neighbor's lawn needed to be mowed and he's a doctor and, uh, an emergency room physician and is always working 
or sleeping. And it's hard. And my son just one day, when he only had a few days left before he was leaving to go on his mission, he just said, why don't we go mow their lawn? And all of my kids thought, okay. And everybody went over and mowed their lawn. It was one person. All you need is one person one that has person. the idea. That's right. That's and, right. And it works. That's right. In fact, this woman, apparently there was a lot of garbage around her home property, and they were even thinking, these boys, about going back and helping her out with that. So, I mean, it was about a 30-mile drive. Uh, that these, they, you know, The mother packed them in the car and took them that far. And So, way to go. Great it's, examples. That's it. And moms and dads made it happen, Absolutely. too. Absolutely. Good stuff, folks. Great job, Kathy. Love that segment. Again, that's what we're trying to do on the show is help you see the good in the world. Hour number two, folks. We're done with it. We'll be back next hour. More ideas, more tools right here on The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Top of the morning to you. Hey, got a great show for you today. Um, we, uh, we've been covering it all so far. The working poor, covered that in the first hour, second hour. Got into the entrepreneurial spirit of Garrett G., a guy that put together a $54 million app, sold it. Now he's going to go travel the world with his family. And uh, to, uh, now in this hour, we're going to be talking with Jeff Steibel about the coming, you know, merge of humans and machines. Hmm. What happens when you can take the human mind and combine it with machine intelligence? We already do that, right? So I don't need to know everything. I just need to know how to find Google on my phone. Because once I can find Google on my phone, then I can get to Wikipedia. And once I've got Wikipedia, I own the world. No. It's a machine, right? The com- your, your phone's a tool. And what happens when we co- uh, combine our mind with these machines? What can we eventually create? Uh, we've heard over and over with guests on the show the power of just simply the computing power that we now have and how that is creating major advancements in certain uh, research because now with the computers, they can actually quantify better uh, in their studies. They can, uh, they can figure out more effectively the numbers, the research, and they can do things that they were never able to do before. Tie, tie and make connections that they've never been able to make simply because – of the technology. Even here on BYU campus, we now have more and more research being done in our sociology departments and our human development departments around using MRIs and other imaging tools to image the brain. What's going to happen the minute we can actually start understanding exactly what's going on in the brain? Holy cow. Folks, it's just getting crazy. So we'll be joined uh, in just a few minutes by Jeff Steibel, who is going to uh, be teaching us the power of the human brain and machines and, you know, maybe I guess how to handle it, how to prepare for it, maybe what we ought to also be teaching our kids as well. Um, 
We'll be getting to that a little bit later also. We'll be talking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's going to be coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Plus, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with our hero of the day. Townsend's heroes, we call them. And um, again, you're one of them. It's just today may not be the day we highlight you. Eventually, we'll highlight you. Heroes, they're all around us, and they come in all different shapes, sizes, and uh, intentions. So we'll be getting to that as well. But before we get to any of this, let's go to our headlines and uh, hear from Kathy Aiken. State and federal law enforcement officials raided the home of Gerald Fogel, a Subway sandwich spokesman. This took place this morning as part of a child pornography investigation. Electronics were reportedly taken from Fogel's home in Zionsville, Indiana. He's been detained but not arrested. Back in 2000, Fogel became famous after losing 245 pounds eating Subway sandwiches. Several women who accused Bill Cosby of drugging and raping them say a deposition he gave in 2005 corroborates their claims. The previous sealed testimony, which was released yesterday, shows Cosby admitted to acquiring sedatives in order to give them to women he wanted to have sex with. One of his accusers, Barbara Bowman, responded to the news. It was a big, big breath, um, big sigh of relief, um, of hope, and um, looking forward to this this next part of this journey because I think this is really just the beginning. The 77-year-old comedian had been has been accused by more than two dozen women of sexual assault dating back nearly 40 years. The South Carolina State Senate voted yesterday 37 to 3 to remove the Confederate flag from the Capitol. The vote now moves to the House. If it passes there, Governor Nikki Haley said she'll sign it into law. This after a white racist gunned down nine blacks who were in Bible study at a Charles Church last month. San Francisco prosecutors have charged illegal immigrant Francisco Sanchez with murder. This after Sanchez shot a woman standing on a popular pier. Sanchez had seven previous felonies and was deported back to Mexico five times. Sanchez is scheduled to be arraigned today. A 400-pound, 11-foot alligator was shot and killed in Orange, Texas. State game officials say it's the same alligator who killed a man last week. Officials say remains found inside the carcass were identified as 28-year-old Tommy Woodward. An autopsy determined he drowned but lost his left arm in the attack. A Calgary man is facing criminal charges for trying to advertise his business that sells cleaning products, and here's how he did it. He attached 110 balloons to a lawn chair and sailed over the city this past weekend. 26-year-old Daniel Boria said he wanted to advertise his business in a non-conventional way. Yeah, he got that right. He said, at one point, I was looking up at the balloons and they were popping and the chair was shaking. Boria landed in an industrial field, breaking his ankle. Of course, the police were there waiting for him. He was charged with one count of mischief, causing danger to life. And Matt, an 8-year-old Sharpe mix named Georgia is back home after trekking through 35 miles of California canyons and suburbs. The dog got lost after chasing a rabbit late last month. (laughs) The owners were told the 30-pound dog likely wouldn't make it through the first night due to the number of coyotes in the area. But after nine days and dozens of cuts and scratches, Georgia got back home. And if you could just picture this, Matt... Through the doggy door, <laughs> runs onto the owner's bed. Hello. Filthy, stinky, Can you imagine dirty. that? I can't, no. You know, my brother just lost his dog up in the Utah oh, mountains. No. And it's, we have just been. Has it just come home de- yet? No, haven't found it. Maybe it'll We're come hoping home. someone took it, but, you know, I don't know. There's the, you, you just wonder if a mountain lion or something. It's just so hard. And then to hear that, you're just going, come oh, on, that's, Sammy. What kind get of dog back, was get Sammy? Back home. A Sharpe mix, it says. Oh, man. Sammy should have been dead. Oh, for sure. You should see the picture just got, you know, kind of some deep cuts. (laughs) I can't even imagine what that thing had to fight. (laughs) Poor thing. And also, like they said, 
having to go through the Fourth of July fireworks, oh, traffic, the and it got. I can't. Can you imagine the being the sun. owners and hearing your dog running down the hall and jumping on your bed? Just scratch you know, those little, those little, uh, the little sound little of his paws, paws yeah. hitting the. Oh, you know, um, great joy. Isn't that interesting? Because you always hear the stories about the dog that'll eventually make it home. Yeah, I think we used to have a dog that my mom kept trying to ditch in the desert. And it just kept coming back. I don't know if she did. And your mom that would say, oh, wow, I don't know where she went. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry, guys, we lost him. We lost him. And then he's like scratching the door. Arr, arr. My mom would look at him like, ugh, what are How you many doing times here? did she try that? I don't know. I, it's all a blur to me. Because at my house, Did she animals, eventually go for good? I mean, did she eventually lost for I, good? Or? I, she's no longer with us. Yeah. I know that. But um, I, a lot of our animals at our house just disappeared. Yeah. I, I don't know why. They just out of nowhere just disappear, and my mom was like, "That's just weird." Wow, these animals are just disappearing. Oh, I think I'm such a dog lover. I are just you? that would break my heart. She'd find a good home for them. Don't get me wrong. Okay, well that's but okay then. She would say, "You don't want to disappear, do you? Don't make me make you disappear, huh, <laughs> mom?" So scary. I'll do whatever you say. Oh, that's sad. That's you know what else is the weird is the guy with the balloons. Are yeah, you is kidding that funny? me? Funny. You should see the picture. It looks like from the movie Up. Yeah. Except it's not a house. It's him literally on a $20 lawn chair. Well, what are you thinking? He's thinking of people looking up and seeing a sign, I guess, advertising his business. And can you imagine looking up and slowly <laughs> pop, pop? That would not be a good feeling. That would be that moment like, oh, I should have thought I do? this through. <laughs> How interesting. And then he broke his ankle. Broke his ankle. I guess that's what he got. You know. Well, I, well he got great advertising. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. for sure. Oh, yeah. Much more than just being in the lawn chair with the oh, balloons. for sure. Plus he'll every plus he'll have a crime photo of him now, he'll, in a His lineup. Are you the guy with the balloons? <laughs> yes, sir. Sorry, he's lucky he didn't end up on a power line. Oh yeah, he even said he was looking down and saw planes taking off and landing. So yeah. he must have been up there quite a ways. Oh, this must be the airport. Yeah, I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have. <laughs> Probably not the right area. I should to have be been in. upwind. I should have been downwind from the airport. <laughs> Crazy! Wow, good stuff. Good stories. Interesting. See, there's an example where a little uh, mixture of the mind and technology would have. You know, been healthier. He didn't need to get balloons. There's more advanced technology if he wants to fly. Uh, we are going to be joined after this break by Jeff Steibel. And Jeff is going to be teaching us and, and helping us understand a little bit more about this the merger of humans and machines. Okay? What happens uh, when we merge the human and a machine, a new iRobot? Interesting information coming up. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. You know, we've seen the movies with humans and robots interacting, you know, for example, do you remember the cartoon The Jetsons or the movie I, Robot? And lately, these visions of the future are becoming realities of the present. We've moved from supercomputers to laptops to iPhones to Apple Watches and the Google Glass that's, uh, you know, still working through some of its kinks. But what is the what does the frontier look like, you know, in the next 20, 30 years when it comes to technology, according to Jeff Steibel, author of The Coming Merge of Human and Machine Intelligence, humans and machines are only going to get closer, he says. He joins us now live. Mr. Steibel, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank 
you, Matt. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you. Now, you know what? So is is this going to turn into like a Terminator thing where people are half intelligent but full machines? How is this going to work? What What do you see the future of human and machine interaction? Well, well, well I don't think we're going to see the Terminator anytime soon, or at least I hope not. Yeah. And if we do, we probably won't be around to experience it. <laughs> I do see a merging of mind and machine. And to, to a large extent, we're already seeing that happen now. Like, how, how are we? I mean, we do. We see it. We, we still have to control and manage all of our, our machines, right? And we actually, it seems like most of them we still have to physically interact with. Do you, do you see a day where my mind will actually be able to control the machine? Absolutely. And the reality is, even before that, when we think mind is, we always think of it as something special. But it's really just biological wetware. It's, it's a machine in and of itself. So the fact that we're controlling our machines right now using our hands doesn't mean that those machines aren't interacting with us. So later on, we're going to start controlling and interacting with our mind. And it's going to be superficial at first, but eventually it is going to be seamless. Well, we're not going to quite understand where the mind begins and the machine ends. And you can look at that as frightening, a la Terminator. Yeah. Or you can look at that as empowering, uh, like the first time man and, uh, and you know, monkeys started first using tools. I mean, it really is. It, it could be – we could be in for some pretty incredible stuff just in how we manage our home, turn on our lights. I mean, it could, I guess, eventually be a day where you just think to turn on your lights. Or well, you... I, would, I would go so far as to say not could, not even would, but we already, already actually have that. Wow. In fact, I'm a part of a company, chairman of a company called BrainGate, where we have implanted computer chips into quadriplegics and paraplegics. This has been done at universities and hospitals across the world. It's a humanitarian project where you literally see people able to interact with computers using nothing but their minds. Uh, yeah, we see this a lot. We've done two or three stories about bionics and you know people with prosthetics and being able to use and wheelchairs. I mean, I guess I guess that's where we begin, huh? Is with those that already have other disabilities. But how else do you see technology coming into our lives? What What would you give us some examples of what the future is going to look like for just the average Joe? Well, I mean, it's virtually endless when when you really think about it. I mean, right now, to use something like BrainGate or a bionic technology, and I should say as an aside, Utah has been at the cutting edge, the yeah. forefront of this for years. Uh, but to use something like that right now requires brain surgery. You actually have to pop the top uh, uh. and put a computer chip on someone's motor cortex. Uh, but in the future, with nanotechnology, you can imagine doing that with nothing but a surgical shot or injection. Oh, and man. With, with it being that non-invasive, we could all have these. So, you know, at some point, you could imagine playing video games with nothing but your mind. And there are people working on that. You could imagine controlling a car with nothing but your mind. There are people working on that. Uh, you can imagine using a wheelchair, uh, interacting on the Internet, having all of the world's information at your fingertips with nothing but thought as the controlling function. So it is truly endless. I mean, you can just have a ton of fun thinking about it. But the reality is, you know, when we look 50 years from now, it's going to be no different than people speculating and stargazing about sending a man to the moon back, you know, back in the 50s. Right. Uh, or, you know, or determining whether 
we revolve around the sun uh, and the, whether the earth is flat. I mean, this will become so matter of course uh, that people won't look at this as kind of the brink between science and science fiction. But this will be science. This is this is amazing because then technology, all of the machines are nothing more than a true extension of our ourselves. We we really, it's just it, it'll become seamless. It, it's exactly right, and you know when if you have a very good understanding of the brain, you already realize that you know, the difference between our minds and our brains uh, is you know our letters, and that's it, right? The, the, the brain, the muscle, the machine is the mind. Yeah. And once you realize that, it opens up a world of possibilities. Because if your brain is a machine, why can't you connect one machine to another machine? Yeah, right. You know what? I, I'm thinking, though, Jeff, you're gonna you're scaring people to death right now. There's some people thinking, oh, great. We can't even get the IRS good computers. And now, <laughs> and now we're supposed to be able to use our brain to control everything. What's the downside to this? I mean, I assume you have a company around it, so maybe that maybe you don't see a downside. But is there a downside to any of this? There is, of course, always huge downsides with any new technology. But you've got to remember that pundits for thousands of years have been saying with every new technology that there will be a downside of civilization, uh, the downfall of civilization, I should say. No less than Socrates. Like the great Socrates was against the written word. He called it technology. That was the technology of his day. And he said it would corrupt the youth. Uh, It turns out it did corrupt the youth, but it did far more good than bad. And every new technology since, whether it's Gutenberg's printing press, uh, whether it was machinery from the Industrial Revolution, uh, whether it was the TV, the radio, movies, uh, rockets that send people to the moon. With each one, pundits said, we are going to destroy the earth. We're going to ruin civilization. We're going to corrupt the minds of, you know, of the young. Uh, but the reality is humans have a penchant for survival, and we tend to use things that we create mostly for good. There is no question that this can be used for bad. There are all kinds of examples of how this could be used for horrible, horrible, to horrible consequences. But in the end, this will likely have more, far more lasting good on civilization uh, than any of the risks uh, that, you know, that we think about now. But, hey, we're, you know, we, we are prediction machines yeah. at our heart. So it is all too easy for us to predict and think the worst because we're, you know, we're, we're risk-averse people. Yeah, we're trying to protect ourselves. Exactly, exactly. But what, what, what I can tell you with reasonably strong conviction is just as the written word was better, not worse, in Socrates' generation, BrainGate and these other technologies will be far better than bad for our generation. Oh, yeah. And in fact, I, we've seen it on the show. We've talked about it on the show. When you see a quadriplegic or a paraplegic able to stand because of certain implants or inserts and other machines helping them move and do things, I mean, and, and or just or be able to hold or be able to have a prosthetic arm that has sensory ability so that they can feel how high their arm is elevated or how low their arm is elevated. I mean, it's, 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 change, it's life-changing. It's not just putting on an, an arm on somebody that doesn't have an arm. It's creating feeling again. It's creating a sense that this arm actually is part of us. I mean, it's, it changes lives. So 
there is a huge upside. And I, I guess, too, human nature is to be careful. I mean, maybe not as careful as we need to be sometimes, but talk a little bit about um, talk about the work. I guess Berger uh, has done some interesting work with psychic abilities. Talk about that a little bit. Well, it's it's interesting. Back in you know in the early 1900s, what uh, you know what we didn't know about the brain was how it actually functioned and worked. And we you know we we had thought that there was some sort of psychic ability to to the brain to the mind. And what, uh, what most of the scientists thought originally was it was all through blood flow. They just didn't know enough about blood flow and, and how things actually worked. What we, what we ended up learning, and everyone thought that this was in the realm of psychics, was that our brains communicate, interact, and function using electrical current, electricity, just like our iPhones, just like our computers, pure electricity. And for years, people thought that was psychic ability. Hmm. The reality is, it's no more psychic uh, than, than our ability to walk and to talk and interact in this world. So while, uh, while much of what we have learned as psychic ability, real ability, turns out to actually just be good science, uh, we, we haven't really seen anything in the, you know, in the psychic sphere that, that has turned out to be true. So you know, what we've seen from Hans Berger and, and others uh, who are actually looking for psychic ability is when they found something real, something grounded. Uh, th- there was science to it, but in, you know, in their day, and by the way, in our day as well, we, we often think of the brain as too mysterious to truly understand. So, you know, so we push it to the realm of supernatural, yeah. but it is very much real and actual. So, and, and that's, I guess, what we're seeing in the, in the latest research and in organizations like yours. I mean, you're, you, you studied at MIT and the, which, again, they're on the cutting edge of a lot of the science around, um, I mean, I guess just science in general. As we think about the, the more our science uh, grows, the more we can understand, the more we can maybe unleash the power of the mind uh, through other machines. Let's take a break. We're talking with Jeff Stiebel, um, again, the author of the book, um, Coming Merge of Human and Machine Intelligence. He's, uh, he's leading us uh, in some insight and giving us some information on the power, really, of our mind to control machines and the future of the merger between those two concepts. More with Jeff Steibel after this break. To the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, today we're talking about uh, the merger of machines and humans, and uh, the, really the powerful opportunity that that brings to just change lives and, and to to become really, I guess, anything that we want to become in the future. Jeff Steibel is joining us. He's the author of the book "Coming Merge of Human and Machine Intelligence." He's also the CEO of BrainGate, which is a, an organization that uh, that is kind of on the cutting edge of all of this. Welcome back to the show, Jeff. Thank you, Matt. And just quick, uh, quick correction yeah. for, uh, um, for, for the viewers. The book is Breakpoint. Oh, Breakpoint. Uh, uh, Kurzweil wrote the other one. Okay, great, great, great. So Breakpoint yeah. is uh, the name of the book. Now talk to me about, 
your your company BrainGate. Tell me what what are you trying to do there? Sure. I mean, again, with with BrainGate, we're trying to connect mind and machine. So it's actually a very simple concept. We talked about it before the break. The brain communicates using electrical and chemical currents. So what we're doing is we're implanting a computer chip. And this is science, not science fiction, and and this has already been done uh, in human and animal trials. Uh, But uh, we're we're, we're taking this computer chip, we're putting it on on the motor cortex, so the prefrontal cortex of the human brain, and we're listening to the electrical currents running by, the neurons as they fire. As we listen, we have a computer interpret those uh, and make guesses about what the person is thinking. And once we get a good understanding of what's being done, we do this using something called neural network technology. Hmm. Uh, We interpret that, we send it to a computer, and then we use that to allow the mind to interact directly with the computer. And what that allows us to do is listen to the brain, hear as someone says, I want to, as an example, type an email, and then push the email button on a computer and start typing. And we've actually seen this work in real time with, you know, with, with patients, and it is incredibly remarkable. Huh. No way. So, and this is all by implanting, this is implanting a chip. Correct. It's by implanting a, a trick, a, a microchip. That is, that is effectively a listening device into your mind. Amazing. And, you know, when, when, you, when you peer into the mind, it basically sounds like static. Uh, but this chip can actually decipher the static, pick out the neuronal signals, uh, and then interpret them. Holy cow. And then, so, so tell me the future of this. You're already using it with some uh, people with, with other disabilities. Where do you see this going? How do you see that we'll use this? And I guess eventually we won't always need, you know, to open the lid, as you said earlier. We won't, we'll be able to make this a little easier, huh? Absolutely. I mean, look, our, our first and primary goal is to help people in need. So for the near distant future, we want to get this into the hands in the safest possible way of patients, uh, whether it's people who have lost limbs, whether it's people with spinal cord in, uh, injuries, whether it's people who are completely locked in and can't communicate to their loved ones. Uh. That's our first priority right now. But over time, we want this to be something that is an enabling technology. So maybe we go from severe injury to more minor injury. Uh, then we go to fully functioning. And right now, and I think this is where you get truly on the cutting edge, BrainGate is an output device. We're listening to the brain, and we're feeding information into computers. Imagine what we could do in the reverse. Imagine if we could have a device that listened to computers, so listened to the Internet, and could pipe information into our memory banks, into the human mind. All of a sudden, the world's information wouldn't just be available at our fingertips. Yeah. It would be available within our mind. And, and the reason that excites me as a brain scientist is it completely forces you to redefine what it means to be intelligent. Yeah. I mean, what, do, does having a big memory make you intelligent? In some ways it does, but if you have access to the world's information, then it's far more intelligent to have networks and have relationships so you know who to ask for that information. Excellent, yeah. It, it completely redefines who we are, how we think about ourselves, and you know, and how we define the human race 
versus the versus the rest of the animal kingdom. So for me, that is incredibly intriguing, and uh, and we're on the cusp of, of major breakthroughs in that realm. I mean, it, the, to me, there's a lot of hope there. Again, I can still hear. <laughs> I, I almost hear my mom or somebody of that generation saying, oh, boy, here we go. Here we go. Now they're going to take the mind. You're going to start like because then anybody, Dr. Evil, can come fill your brain with stuff. And I'm thinking, well, Dr. Evil's already filling our brains with stuff. It's just exactly right. Yeah. And the power, I boy, the power, though, that you just talked about of a patient that's locked in because of an inability to speak or whatever boy, uh, or in a coma, to get in and to start understanding what's going on in the brain and and trying to rewire some people that, that have these breaks, holy cow, life-changing. Absolutely. And, and you know what? My mom is saying the exact same thing, but my 10-year-old son, Lincoln, and my 8-year-old daughter, Janet, yeah. I'm saying the exact, exact opposite. Yeah. Can I get one, Dad? Dad, I want, I want one. <laughs> this is amazing. Plug and, me in, you know, Dad. In innovation is, you know, is usually a game of, of the youth uh, because we're more naive uh, yeah. and, uh, and we're more opportunistic. And, you know, and the youth generally tend to see the world in a more positive way because they lack those experiences that, you know, that our elders have. Our elders are concerned and conservative, and rightly so. We want both my son and daughter and your mom saying those things to us so that we act with a healthy sense of skepticism, mm. but excitement and optimism at the same at the same time. That is, that is, we need that balance, don't we? That tension between the the different generations. Well, I, and, I and unfortunately, unfortunately, Matt, you and I are smack in the middle. I know. Of we totally are. In fact, I was looking at I was looking at, and I'm thinking. I mean, you're 42, 43, 44 ish. I am. You're exactly right. And exactly. to me, I mean, I, I just find it so exciting that. Um, to have somebody that has your experience and yet is on the front edge of this, um, because we we do we we need we need some morality and integrity behind it all, and yet I love also the fact that the order of this is let's start with those that really are severely injured already. Let's get to those with minor injuries. We'll eventually get to the healthy people, but uh, let's serve them and and learn as we go. We, and we've got years to figure this out. I I appreciate you and your great work there at BrainGate. Again, everybody, the book is called Breakpoint. Jeff Steibel is his name. Thanks again, Jeff, for being here. And uh, travel safely. Wow, folks, can you imagine the day that you just, they just insert, you know, just put a chip in your brain, you know, minor surgery, but that you can now access all the greatest works and they're in your head. They're in your head. Then it's about your ability to magnify your other gifts, your other talents. It's not just about having to accumulate the data. Maybe it's now about doing something with all this information. Interesting, interesting world we're, we're set up for. Powerful stuff, folks. We'll take a break. When we come back, uh, we'll go visit our good buddies at uh, BYU Sports Nation, find out what they've got coming on later in their show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody. Looking for our good friends, former Jedis. Uh, Jerem Jordan from BYU Sports Nation is joining us. Jerem, I don't know who's with you today. It is Spender. No way! With him today, Spence, you're back. Where have you been? On vacation. You've been at you've been at Star Wars camp. Uh, 
this one time at Star Wars camp. <laughs> he he he, uh, he stayed an extra day. Spencer's back. This is exciting. I haven't had you guys together for weeks. Kind of feels that way, doesn't it? It's like you guys had broken up. Well, Jerem has to go on vacation every other week, so. It's mm. summer, man. <laughs> Wait, why would I? Why would I? Hang? I'll be here all fall and winter. Are, are you are you done vacationing? No. Okay. That's, I that's have good ten days true. scheduled. Are, do you really? Between now and the middle of August, Jeremy's got like fifty days to burn. Wow, that's amazing. A lot of us, a lot of us don't get that many days. That's that's fantastic. We actually get the same amount of days. I'm so proud of you guys. He just built his up. It's you just... can carry twenty two from twenty one from year to year. Oh, I didn't know that. What? I didn't know that. That's good news. Hmm. Well, it took a while to make you a full-timer for some weird reason. I know. But now that you're now I'm indebted. FTE, as we mm-hmm. call it around here. Yeah, FTE. Yeah. Uh, or FTE. You can take as many. You, <laughs> you have Kathy Aiken now. You can take days off. Dude, Kathy's a rock star. It took a while to get a backup, but now you can take days off, man. I'm, I'm taking a, golfing. I'm already Just planning. Just you and I. Spencer's got to be here to do no, Spencer's got to now hold down the fort Kathy because we're going Spencer golfing. can hold it down. <laughs> Spence, how you been? Oh, you know, I'm just dandy. Did you hear about my new invention? No. It's it's the air conditioned shirt. Because you Wait, know, I doesn't doesn't you, Nike make something like that? You know, I sweat a lot. Called dry fit. No, 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 no. This has real air conditioners in it. Charles Holcroft uh, has developed with my, Matt Townsend's help a shirt that can keep you cool during the summer. And Holcroft is the president of Chesapeake-based comfort wear. He says he's already developed and sold winter jackets and clothing that actually heat up when you press a button. Now he's expanding into summer wear. The shirt runs off a battery and powers two small fans in the back of the shirt. And the fans blow cool air into the shirt for about five hours. I'm calling a flag on that. Did you just get an email a moment ago? Did you invent this? Did you hear my email? Yeah, Yeah. we heard it. Did you guys send it to me? No, I, I didn't invent it. I'm just jealous of Charles. But... I, I used to have a shirt that I wanted to invent that had fans under your arms, under your okay. in your armpit areas, to keep you cool. Uh, but then I realized it also blows underarm heat out, and that didn't sell very well. No. So I gave up on air-conditioned shirts. <laughs> that was a wise business move on your part. But I do have a pair of air-conditioned pants I'm working on that are fantastic. <laughs> Where do you have all this time to do all of the things that you tell us you do on a day-to-day basis? What do you think I do in my little closet office? <laughs> Good point. Good. I just Fantastic shut the door. Point. I shut the door. I turn off the light. I climb under my desk, and I put on my thinking cap. Once your show is over, who knows what in the world is going on uh-huh. I'm in thinking. your office? I'm inventing air-conditioned <laughs> pants. Which is something that makes BYU very happy, I'm sure. They love it. They love it when I'm inventing things. Because I'm going to put it in the BYU store. Awesome. It can join our blue goggles and BYU Sports Nation t-shirt. I'm hoping to get my pants right on, on the table in front of you. A whole ensemble. Mm-hmm. Tons um, of fun. One of the greatest moments in BYU Radio history was when we moved out of that studio because it got a lot quieter. No, you you know what? It totally did. <laughs> we had some... Uh, snarky jokes at us there because we'd leave the door open we'd be quoting things and screaming and yeah you guys were out of control let's just say let's just say you know it's not the temple over there like it's not always reverent well no well it is now yeah yeah now it's now it's it's back to reverence now it's reverent yeah you guys used to be irreverent in fact they they still talk about you there's there's still like fear in people's eyes (laughs) like here they come they're like and then I'm quoting back to Harleen down the hall find this guy (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, know, dude, that's, just, you, that's just a, that's a Tuesday for Jeremy. You know, you can't yell in these halls here. It's July seventh. It's very it's it's sacro, sacrosanct here. Hey, um, are you guys still doing your thing? You said There's you still question. got your show. There is the question. I wait for it every day, <laughs> and the answer that's a, once again is yes. You still are. Okay. Oh, we are. Yeah, we're gonna I thought do we the weren't. show. Oh, okay. That's amazing. We're really close to answering no last Thursday when you asked. Me yeah, that. I know. You guys are like. Ugh. Okay, we're doing it. So, yeah. so what, what's on the show today? Let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Do you buy into the hype machine that surrounds BYU athletics? I used to until I started talking to you guys regularly. <laughs> what, what changed? <laughs> Just that I, I did, it was no longer hype. It was all real to me. Now, oh, now it's all okay. real. It was the real deal. Yeah, now it's totally real. You guys, it's just real. Today marks this two-week expedition over the summer uh, in, wa- in award watch lists okay. being released. Yeah. Okay. Because it's July, it's almost impossible to not pay attention. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's not a lot going on. Speaking of Star Wars, Luke Skywalker says, that's impossible! Uh, do you buy into the hype, though, of these award watch lists, or do you try and downplay it? Downplay Is it. Is it a good, No, bad, bad. evil, evil. Good press. Good press evil. for a good wow. press for a moment. I'd say those lists are from the dark side. I'd say, I mean, back to the Star Wars. I'd yeah, say yeah, they're yeah, from, yeah. I, think, I think there's a Vader that's somehow over that, a Lord or a Darth. Okay, we're going to dive into the psychology of preseason hype and buzz okay. and how you approach it as a fan, if it's good or bad. How about a player? Taysom Hill offered uh, his thoughts on it. Yeah. And how a coach is using it to motivate one of his players. Okay. Oh. So some interesting things Hype's here. A, that's a good – use it as a motivator. Yeah. The hype, the psychology of preseason hype. I like it. I like <laughs> it. We're not breaking down the psychology, are we? Yeah. You're breaking <laughs> – well, I'm trying for to Matt's, sound smart. Yeah. Oh. I'm trying to no, sound it, intelligent no, I think for it, Matt's show. I think it's That's fantastic. I'm getting scared. <laughs> but you know what? Wait, we didn't talk about that. But do you remember? I, I, do you remember Spencer when you hyped up your your sprint? <laughs> do you remember all the hype of that? So that's right then's when I started not believing in hype. Hey, but I came through, didn't I? You I almost did, but you but you slipped you didn't on come the through. You just ran. You slipped on the dirt clod thing, and yeah. but you needed another shot. So right then I started thinking next March, next March. Yeah, well, I think you ought to be doing it in July, man. July's a little slower, so you might. <laughs> Good point. It's you, about the content. I know. I think you, you what you guys ought to throw together is some hype filled thing. Maybe Jerem needs to do mm. something that we hype up in July. True. I'm it's just, all about the content. You know what? I met some people. From, speaking of Jeremy Hype and what he's done on the show, I met some people from Hawaii yesterday. And yeah. they're like, hey, we, we love your show, but honestly, uh, we've been kind of busy, so we haven't really watched until March. Has his hair grown back? <laughs> wow. <laughs> They've missed quite a bit. But it looks I, great. I haven't cut my hair since then, by the way. But you know what? The perm looks really good. Nice. The perm, I think, makes takes it to another level. Yeah. Because yep. people are on radio with me, they can't. They don't know, Jerem. They may not know. Yeah, that you well, don't have a perm. Cornrows next week. Hey, you know what else is on the show? What? A guy who has victories over John McEnroe, Pete Sampras, and Boris Becker. What? In tennis. Who? Pay attention to the show. Is there a name? There is a name. He's a professional tennis player. He was. was. Is is with he the BYU connection? Is he the BYU? One. Is he a BYU psychologist? Nope. But he may as well be. Oh, oh I see. That's there. a good show right there, pal. That was smooth, man. Okay, I'm teased. <laughs> that was uh, gelato. You've effectively, effectively used hype and the psychology of hype to get me to now watch your show today. 
Again, because I lie. do every day. You lie. You're trying to invent yes. air-conditioned pants. You don't have time for this show. Well, I can, I, I'll be cutting out my patterns while I'm watching your show. <laughs> I'll be, yeah, I'll be rewiring my fans. Do yourself a favor, Matt. I turn, I'll do Embrace it. the hype. I will. Hey, watch the show today. I'm doing it. Today I will. All right. Today I will. Tomorrow I will tell you the person that you interviewed. <laughs> okay. That's how good this will be. This Guys, will be a quiz. you did it again. Have a great show. Spencer, good to have you back. Jerem, thanks for holding down the fort. That's what I do. That's what you do. It's who you are. That's impossible. <laughs> That's impossible. <laughs> good people. Good people. Uh, don't give him sugar before the show. Remember that. Keep Jerem away from the sugar and the food cart. Thanks, guys. Uh, have a good one. Man, good Bye. stuff. Good guys. Wow. You know, it's hard. It's got to be hard in July for them to get a topic. And they come up with that doozy of the hype, the psychology of the hype. We use the hype all the time on this show. Well, actually, we don't. We use more of the psychology, not the hype. We're not very good at hyping because every time I've ever hyped something, you know, no one's really behind me on it. So I'm just kind of hyped. I'm a solo hyper. Ben's looking at me with a little head shake. Hey, uh, as you like, as you know, we like to end the show um, with a hero of the day. Townsend's heroes, we call him. Our hero this time is Gunhild Swanson, 70-year-old woman who finished the Western States endurance run. On Saturday morning around 11 a.m., Gunhild Swanson became the oldest woman to complete the Western States endurance run course, which is the oldest 100-mile race in the country and by far one of the toughest. The runners climb more than 18,000 feet and descend nearly 23,000 feet before they reach the finish line. And on Sunday morning at 11 a.m., 70-year-old Gunhild Swanson finished the cross the finish line with just six seconds left in the race. She set a new world or a new record, becoming the oldest woman to ever have competed and completed the course. When she crossed the finish line, onlookers gave her the loudest and proudest cheers of any of the other runners, including even the winner. Swanson's team cheered her on as she rounded the last stretch, giving her instructions and pouring ice water all over her. Swanson said, I came around and saw the clock and thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going to finish. Ultra runner Andy Jones Wilkins uh, wrote on her Facebook page, in over 15 years of attending the Western States, I have never witnessed anything like what transpired on the track shortly before 11 a.m. I still have the chills 90 minutes later. How cool is that? A 70-year-old running a 100-mile race, ascending 18,000 feet, descending 23,000 feet, and making it just in time. Holy cow. What are you going to do when you're 70? You know, what's your goal? What are your dreams? And notice this one 70 year old woman inspired how many people, including one of the top finishers to be inspired, awestruck, really, even 90 minutes after folks, that's the power of the human. And one of the goals of the show is to help you see the human potential. We call it the human factor, and we've all got it. It's inside of each one of us, that divine spark, that goodness that's inside of us. And that goodness may drive you to be better and to race harder, but that goodness may also just be there to help you lift the people around you or to magnify your your abilities to get out there and, and to change a life or to raise your family. So we're here to help you on all of these fronts. Again, we can't do the show without you, so please stick with us. We'll be back again tomorrow, uh, 9 Eastern time, 9 to noon Eastern time. 
right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Go find our go find our podcast on iTunes or tune in. You can also find us at byuradio.org. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Until tomorrow, take care of yourself and make it a great one.